Hi, guys. Welcome to the Katie Halper Show. So as people probably know, on Wednesday night, we did a great live stream for Stephen Donziger, the human rights lawyer who was sentenced to six months in federal prison for basically suing Chevron, which had poisoned the water of the Ecuadorian Amazon, which increased rates of birth defects and cancer for the indigenous people living there. So we did the stream and Thursday, Stephen Donziger was allowed to serve the rest of his sentence under home arrest. Now, this is amazing news. He gets to be with his family instead of in prison. He does have to remain under house arrest, though, and he does need to once again wear an ankle monitor. I say once again because he served over two years under house arrest before. And this struggle and this fight isn't over because he shouldn't be sentenced to anything. He should have his law license back because he was disbarred during this criminal persecution and prosecution. And also Chevron still has remained to pay assent to the people of Ecuador. So there's a lot more to do, but this is a small step in the justice direction. So we're very happy about that. And just to clarify, this was a decision made by the prisons. So Donziger has not been cleared. He has not been freed. He's simply serving the rest of his six-month sentence under house arrest. And Chevron has yet to pay a penny. This was recorded before we learned the good news about Stephen Donziger. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Katie Helper Show, and I'm your host, Katie Helper. If you like the show, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show, where for just $1 a month, you can help make the show happen. And for $5 a month, you'll qualify for great bonus content, including an alternative podcast feed and rarely seen clips that aired on our live shows. Two, I want to say the Katie Helper Show, but this is so much more than the Katie Helper Show. This is the Katie Helper Show, uh, joins forces with many other shows and many other women across the globe, mostly across the room, uh, <laughs> to free Stephen Donziger. And I'm one of your co-hosts. Let me just take the time to look at all of them. Okay, I'm one of the co-hosts, Katie Helper, and I'm joined by... Marianne Williamson. Crystal Ball. And Brianna Gray. And we have a great show for you tonight. We are here to raise awareness about the case of Stephen Donziger, as people know, probably uh, from our shows or one of the kind of two other places maybe you've, you've heard talk about this because, I mean, there's been very mum on this, of course. But people, uh, you probably know that Stephen Donziger is an incredibly brave uh, human rights attorney who is serving time in prison. He is the person in prison over the crimes committed by Chevron. His crime was going after Chevron and suing them on behalf of indigenous people in the Ecuadorian Amazon whose water was poisoned. And because he actually successfully sued Chevron, he is behind bars and Chevron has not had to pay the um, lawsuit that they uh, were demanded to pay. That's so right. we are here to raise awareness. We're also here to raise funds. Crystal, do you want to talk? Yeah. So a um, few goals tonight. Number one, as Katie was just saying, look, Stephen's in prison, and so he can't speak, he can't address the media, he can't come on our shows anymore. It is incumbent upon us and good people out there who care to raise hell about this, because it is an outrageous injustice, both for Stephen and his family personally, but obviously with massive implications for the country, for environmental activists, for indigenous peoples. If they can do this to Stephen, they can do it to literally anyone. So we have to 
keep the pressure on. We have to keep the political momentum going. We have had a few members of Congress, encouragingly, who have at least put out statements. We're starting to raise their voices and put some pressure on. But this is an insane situation, an insane state of affairs that we have to absolutely do everything we can to stop. The second goal, as you said, is, um, listen, Chevron put out there, and this came out in Discovery, that their whole plan was to, quote, demonize Donziger. That was their plan. They set out to destroy this man and to destroy his life and his livelihood. And of course, on top of forcing him to be disbarred and him being able to work and being on home confinement, he's also racked up massive legal bills because of these insane trials that he's been put through over and over again. So if you're able to contribute to his legal defense fund, um, the link is right there. Donate at freedonziger.com. I talked to Sagar about it. Um, Breaking Points is going to contribute $1,000 to get that donation drive moving in the right direction. Listen, if you're able, this man deserves all the support that we can possibly give him. Um, and then, you know, in terms of the show tonight, as Katie said, we have incredible lineup, truly, truly incredible lineup. I won't go through the whole list, but I'll give you a, a few of the names. We've got Susan Sarandon. We've got Lucy Lawless. We've got David Sorota. We've got Richard Wolf, We've got Chris Hedges. We have Nina Turner. We have activists, um, you know, who are intimately familiar with with the case and with uh, the work that that Stephen was doing down in Ecuador, we have his lawyers to give us an update on the case so that we know exactly where we stand. And you also have all of us. And so the, the big plan is after all of this, the four of us are going to hijack the view, <laughs> hold them hostage and do their show for them, saying all sorts of uncomfortable things for everybody in power <laughs> until they let this man out of prison. So that's the bigger goal. Yes, hijacking America's most valuable asset. <laughs> Be, bring the Biden administration to, <laughs> to its, its knees. knees. <laughs> and and that's going to justice finally. That's right. And look, there's a reason why so many of us and so many compelling people have decided to, to tune in tonight and to cover them on their shows and raise awareness all this time. is because the scope of what's going on here is really extreme at both ends. On the first First and foremost, on the Ecuador end, the scale and scope of both the judgment that was correlated to the level of pollution is really extreme. Remember, at the time, and perhaps still today, it was the largest ever judgment against uh, an oil company of this kind, $8.5 billion, right? And instead of actually collecting on that judgment or paying that judgment, instead, Chevron has spent billions of dollars trying to, in uh, uh, legal fees, avoiding paying that judgment and doing things like prosecuting Stephen Donziger, to Crystal's point, to scare other activists out of pursuing these kinds of causes, right? And on this end, the kind of persecution that's going on here is truly a corporate prosecution. The district attorney's office in New York declined to prosecute either because they didn't think there was anything there, um, and because there's no substance to the case. Instead, the judge who has demonstrated a vendetta of sorts against Donzinger gave the right to prosecute, basically, to a law firm, um, Gibson Dunn, that has ties itself, of course, to the oil and gas industry, to Chevron, um, directly. So because of the gall and the um, enormity of what's going on, I think it's galvanized a lot of really important actors to get involved, and we hope that you share in that with us tonight. <laughs> Stephen would also want us to remember that this is very much about the way fossil fuel companies have and unfortunately continue to treat uh, peoples from indigenous cultures. This crime, of course, was in the Amazonian swath um, in Ecuador, 
where the environmental standards were even less than in the United States. This original crime was done by Texaco, which was later bought by Chevron back in the 1960s. And what they did was that, and they admit this, this is not even um, uh, open to question at this point, is that in order to save $3 a pit, they unlined the pits. You can imagine what this meant in terms of the pollutants in the water, in the food, in the ground, even in the air, and would actually say to the indigenous farmers there, oh, this is good for you. It's got vitamins in it. It's got mother's milk. And when you think about that $8.5 billion judgment, if that correlates to the level of pollution, then remember what that means. And I think Stephen would also want us to to remember, which we do anyway, that, that this level of uh, criminality towards uh, the rights, the human rights, the land rights, um, continues to this day, both in the United States and in Canada. So, so many of these things that happened before are still happening. And the kind of stand that we're all taking now is not just for the sake of Stephen Donziger. It's for the sake of all environmental activists, all human rights activists, all the people such as these indigenous tribes uh, that are being hurt all private citizens that, uh, as uh, Brianna and Kate and uh, Crystal have already said, could be prosecuted. I mean, if this, if, if, if a corporation can prosecute any American citizen in a way that I think none of us even would have thought could happen, then that could happen to any of us. So we're in here for something really big, galvanizing a movement. As Stephen said to me in a letter, he said, something special is happening. We are galvanizing a movement around the fundamental issue, the need to protect all advocates who work to hold polluters accountable and to help save our planet while upholding the highest standards of human rights. And we are going to get moving uh, with bringing our guests because we have such an amazing show for you. Just quickly, a logistical point. Uh, you can also donate. So please go to freedonziger.com. Also, if you're watching on YouTube and you donate to a Super Chat, I'm going to give all the Super Chats from tonight's stream to that. Awesome. So, uh, you know, for the lazy people out there. Just want to <laughs> We want to make it yeah. as easy as, as possible. possible yeah. People to support yes. So we're going to be bringing on our first um, amazing set of guests. Um, we are bringing on Giada Lubomirsky, who is an artist, uh, producer, activist, and the founder of EcoShaker, a community-driven platform uh, dedicated to environmental education and action. During the last eight months, Giada fully committed herself to help organize and manage the on-the-ground movement to free Donziger in NYC. She helps Stephen, the Ecuadorian community activists from all over the world and various organizations come together. And we're also going to be bringing on Paul Pasimino, associate director at Amazon Watch, who has overseen its Clean Up Ecuador campaign ever since 2007. He's been a professional human rights, corporate accountability and environmental justice advocate for over 25 years. And uh, we are just going to bring in these two amazing guests. We're so glad to have you join us. Thank you so, so much for joining. Welcome, guys. Hi. Hi. Great to meet you all. It's nice to see you again, Marianne. Nice to see you, Paul. So glad you're here with us. Yeah. So, um, hi, guys. If we could start with you, Paul, just can you, because you've been working on this case for a while, and thanks to both of you for your tireless efforts. Paul, can you set up for the audience the story of this case of Chevron's um, poisoning of the waters and the case of Stephen Donziger? Sure, sure. Um, I'll do my best to condense it um, because it's such a long saga. So I, as you mentioned, I'm the associate director at Amazon Watch. Amazon Watch has been around for 25 years, and we work in solidarity with indigenous communities to protect the Amazon rainforest and advance their rights. As part of our work, we've been accompanying this campaign for justice in Ecuador since 2000. The legacy of Chevron's destruction 
is continuing every single day, not just with the pollution that remains there, an area the size of, of Manhattan or Rhode Island, but every single day more crude is extracted from the Amazon, and about 20% of that from the Ecuadorian Amazon is still being refined by Chevron in California. So while what I'm going to tell you about happened in the past as far as their destruction, they continue to profit off the destruction of the rainforest and our environment, specifically in Ecuador, every single day. So what happened was in the 1960s, before any oil company had ever drilled for oil in the Amazon, Texaco went down, signed a consortium agreement with the government of Ecuador and developed oil fields in the northern Ecuadorian Amazon called the Oriente. They had the exclusive production rights. They operated as a consortium, but they were the sole operator, right? So they were the ones who decided how to operate and what to do. And as Marianne mentioned, they designed a system to pollute deliberately. In order to save $3 a barrel, they extracted heavy foundation waters. When you, when you extract crude before you get to the crude, you get this heavy water that's laced with carcinogens and other toxins. Instead of following the standard in the United States and everywhere else of storing that foundation water in tanks and then re-injecting it into the earth, they decided that they would save $3 a barrel if they simply dug pits into the Amazon rainforest and dumped that waste into the environment where it would drain directly into the drinking water of indigenous peoples and other peoples who've lived there, essentially 30,000 people. So it's not an exaggeration to say that they intentionally poisoned the drinking water of 30,000 people over the course of decades for a profit. In 1992, when their consortium ended, they lifted their hands and said, we're out, we're done. We're going to leave this system to the government of Ecuador. You can operate it from this point forward. So they left a system that was still polluting. And then they signed a corrupt agreement with the government of Ecuador for $40 million for an alleged remediation. They left 917 of those pits that I mentioned, which every day rain would go into and it would drain into local waterways. Then they washed their hands of it and thought they were free. But that's when Stephen Donzinger stepped in with other lawyers and filed a class action lawsuit against Texaco in New York, where their headquarters was. They spent eight years fighting in New York for the right to be heard after this company, which had deliberately poisoned them, not hiding its acts, had committed these crimes. And yet, after eight years, they were sent packing. The New York, the Southern <coughs> District of New York, the same one that just prosecuted Stephen and put him in jail, told Ecuadorian people they could not seek justice there. And they, they accepted Chevron's argument that the case should be held in Ecuador. At that point, Chevron and Texaco merged. It's the same company, some of the same executives, same liability. They tried to say that it was Texaco and not Chevron. But we all know the truth is it's the same company. So the Ecuadorians started the lawsuit again in Ecuador. And after eight more years, they won a $9.5 billion judgment. That included mostly Chevron's scientific samples of contamination. So hundreds of thousands of pages of evidence. Over the course of decade, almost a decade, this case went on. And based on Chevron's evidence, they were found liable for $9.5 billion. But they said, there's no way we're going to pay. They said famously, we're going to fight till hell freezes over and then fight it out on the ice. And two weeks before that judgment was issued, they preemptively sued Stephen Donzinger and the Ecuadorians back in that same district of New York that had sent them packing before, saying that the entire thing was a scheme. And not only Stephen, Amazon Watch, 
journalists, shareholders, anyone that had worked on behalf or advocated on behalf of the Ecuadorian citizens was rolled into this RICO suit. And that's the real threat to all of our activism in the United States. This judge, Lewis Kaplan, allowed them to bring this suit, would not allow a jury, and had Stephen sued at that point for $60 billion. On the eve of the trial, they dropped the money damages so that they wouldn't have to have a jury. They found on behalf of Chevron, after listening to the testimony of a bribed witness who was paid $2 million in cash and benefits by Chevron to lie on their behalf, who later admitted that he did it and that he did it for a payout. That's how they won this RICO decision. And that decision is what Chevron has since used to scare away other people from working for justice in this case and ultimately to put Stephen in jail by saying that he isn't complying with the decisions made by Kaplan. What's important to mention, and I know I've talked for a long time and I've left a lot out, unfortunately, (sighs) is that their targeting of Stephen and the fact that you're talking about, about this now is showing what Stephen has said to be true is coming true. They have actually helped galvanize a movement because by targeting him in this way, the world has woken back up to the severity of their crime and even worse, the severity of their retaliation for those who fight them. We are in the streets every day challenging the fossil fuel industry. It's one thing to go out there and hold a sign and march, which we should all do. But look what happens when we actually hold them to account, when we bring them into court and get a victory. They turn around and use the U.S. government and the U.S. judicial system to crush the people bringing that victory and try to silence them. So this pushback is incredibly important, not just for Ecuador, for Peru, for all the Amazon, but everywhere that we're challenging the fossil fuel industry. And that's why it's so critical that you're talking about it now. And I, and I love the way you opened it up because it was so, so important to cover the broader issues, Marianne. Like you said, this is the front of the climate justice movement. If Stephen yes. isn't protected, we cannot hold these companies accountable for what they're doing. Well, and when I try to explain <coughs> the case to people, they have such a hard time wrapping their head around it because it's so dissonant from their understanding of how the justice system is supposed to work. They almost can't believe it. I mean, that it literally is the case. I actually tried to explain the situation to my four-year-old today because she wanted to know why mommy wasn't going to be there tonight. And I was trying to break it down as basic as it could, as I could. Because when it comes down to it, it's very simple. Simple. Chevron committed mass crimes in Ecuador, poisoned people, poisoned the water, devastated their well-being, devastated their homes, devastated their health. But instead of them ever being held accountable whatsoever or paying a dollar in restitution for their crimes, they instead have criminalized this man and put him in prison. Giada, I wanted to bring you into the conversation here um, because Paul made the point, Marianne was mentioning from Stephen's letter, too, that this has galvanized a movement. Well, you've been at the forefront of that movement. What is it that brought you to Stephen's cause? Well, first of all, thank you so much having me um, on. Uh, It's an honor to be here. Um, Yeah, I mean, I found out about Stephen's case and Ecuador's case um, through the famous documentary Crude on YouTube. And like you mentioned, it's a very hard case to wrap your brain around. So it kind of stayed with me. And then one of my um, social media followers tagged me on Stephen's page And I realized it was the same lawyer and freaked out because I was like, wait a minute, this is a human rights lawyer who's been at the front line of this fight and he's in house arrest in the city I live in. I went, 
berserk and I contacted him right away. And it just started from March 2nd. Um, and I have not left uh, Stephen's side and his family's side and been trying to do everything that I possibly can. I dropped off drop, dropped all my projects to fully work on this. And uh, because I saw that nobody was really helping manage the old support, the existing support and the new support coming in. So I had to just uh, use all the resources that I had, tap into my community, which is the creative community in New York City, fashion, art, and um, the environmental uh, community that I work with. And we just I just couldn't believe that everyone I asked, nobody had ever heard of this case. And we're talking about the largest environmental disaster in the world right now that's been sitting there for 28 years. So I said to myself, you know what? I have a lot of projects going on, but this is the most important environmental case in, in the history of, of the world. That's the way I see it, because what Stephen represents and what this case uh, symbolizes is actually an American corporation that is committing genocide, ecocide in 31 countries, um, I, I'm, I'm not sure if you're going to have Dr. Nan Greer on, but I, I recommend that everybody study her forensic report on the genocidal crimes, which involved rape, torture, um, cancer, death, death by cancer, uh, kidnappings and flat out murders um, that Chevron has been a part of. Their model is. I'm going to partner with dictatorships, <coughs> destroy indigenous and marginalized communities to the point that they can no longer survive on this land. They cannot survive. So what ends up happening here is that we're looking at a very big, huge problem. Why are we allowing for white supremacy to lead capitalism and destroy truth? which is what Stephen represents and what the Ecuadorian community in the Amazon represents. There's babies and children that are still dying in Lago, Lago Agrio in Ecuador. And people really need to understand, the viewers that are watching today need to understand, it is vital that we get Stephen out of jail immediately. And that if you can, please support Stephen. And what I see, a global genocidal problem and um, and crimes committed by one of the largest, if not the largest, big oil American corporation in the world. We all have to stick together, just like uh, you mentioned now with Congresswoman Tlaib. You can't arrest the truth and you can't arrest us all. But the only way we're going to grow this movement and to have positive results and for them to to, to hold them accountable and, and make justice be served is if we all stay united because Chevron's model is to tire everybody out. You have no idea how many supporters I have met that have been by Stephen's side for over 20 years who come and go because this they cannot believe this is still going on. And this is their, their tactic. 
This is their model. They want to tire us all out. So we give up. But guess what? We are here and we're not going anywhere. And we're just getting stronger by the minute. And um, yeah, so uh, that's that's basically what I have to say. But I have a lot more to say. And obviously, there's so many guests. So um, I don't want to take up too much time. Um, Well, Giada and Paul, both of you, thank you so much for laying out so eloquently what the stakes are, what the crimes were that were committed. Thank you for your activism and for being uh, there for Stephen through all of this. Your perseverance. Your perseverance absolutely is an inspiration. So thank you both so much for joining us tonight. Thank yeah, you thank so, you for having so me. Uh, and I know Stephen Stephen really wants everyone to understand he knows he will make it through this, but he's going to leave that place with that entire movement behind him that is so much stronger, and it's it's going to backfire on Chevron in the end. All of this is going to backfire. We're going to make sure that it does. We're going to make sure. That's the point. We're going to make sure. BeDonZigger.com. Everybody. That's right. BeDonZigger.com. Again, guys, Chevron has put Stephen through hell, um, you know, with massive legal bills is just one aspect of this fight. And so if you can give to freedonziger.com or as Katie said earlier, if you if you donate in the super chat, she's going to donate all of that to Stephen's legal defense fund so that he can afford to continue this battle. And by the way, I just wanted to say, guys, we see you in the super chat, Valerie Stewart and Jean Headley and Mike and all of you guys, uh, Lord and Connie, all of you guys who are giving uh, money there that's going to go to Stephen's legal defense fund. And thank we could you. not have thank you enough for your contributions. It means so, so much and is going to help enable him to continue this fight. Um, We have another fantastic guest we want to bring in, Lucy Lawless. She's a New Zealand-born actress. You guys might know her as Xena, the warrior princess. But even more important, in my opinion, than that is she's an incredible activist, an incredible humanitarian, and actually traveled to Ecuador um, to meet with people and to view the area of this mass poisoning and dumping. So welcome, Lucy. We're so glad to have you. Hi. Hi, women folk. (laughs) Delighted to share a virtual stage with you. Um, Yeah, I um, met Stephen and, you know, to meet Stephen is to kind of just love him because uh, what he's about is so pure and so dead on and, and, um, and he suffered a lot. He suffered a lot to do what's right and his family have suffered a lot. Because, uh, you know, they try to paint him as somebody who's hiding assets or something, but it's absolutely, absolute poppycock. You know, this guy has lost everything to do what's right by the people of Lago Agrio. So anyway, I went there and um, just to set the scene, you arrive in Quito and it's this uh, World Heritage site with very famous, um, famous square with 16th and 17th century buildings and um, everything's pretty, pretty quaint. And then you drive four and a half, five hours over the Andes. And it's not like the Andes where you crash your plane and have to eat the goalkeeper. It's it's kind of lower. It looks a bit more like New Zealand, actually. And, um, and it's right on the equator. So it's jolly hot. And you get out into the area that is called Lago Agrio, which was, I think Paul said, um, created in the 60s by Texaco to um, – you know, set up all the infrastructure and things that they needed on site for the oil company. And I visited the communities there of La Primavera, um, San Carlos, what's the other, Shushufindi, and met the locals and found um, such warm, intelligent, quite poetic human beings and um, 
and very tough, very staunch. But when you ask them, when I asked Juan Carlos, Calavas, sorry, um, in his darkest moments, what are his feelings? And he broke down because he said it's like a monster that lives beneath them all the time, that they're waiting for their children to be picked off because, um, you know, three out of four kids is born with this horrible rash in this area. And um, uh, there are such things as nervous system disorders and, and stomach cancer, uterine cancer, very young. I met a couple of young women. Both of them had lymphatic cancer. And um, all of this comes from drinking and living around polluted water. So the the settlement, if it was ever paid, is only going to go to clean up the ponds that are the thousand ponds, which apparently cover an area the size of Manhattan, that money will barely go to remediate that land so that future generations will not suffer these nervous system disorders, these horrible skin conditions, spontaneous abortions, all manner of cancers. Um, we're not They're not even asking for damages for the people who have suffered horribly. And... Um, have not only lost their lives and their health, but they've lost their way of life. They're fishing. They're, um, they used to be fantastic fish farmers, right? They've been doing it for thousands of years. They know how to do these things. And the um, they could grow their own produce. So before Chevron bought the promise of jobs, they kind of didn't need jobs because the land provided their, they were working for their own um, existence. Do you know what I mean? And in what they described as a paradise. So what the jobs and the prosperity has not transferred, uh, transformed into any kind of wealth that you can see. You just see hideous pipes for hundreds of miles along the roads and you see sick people and you see whorehouses, which have been shut down by um, COVID, but no doubt will be back. I mean, this is the kind of prosperity and jobs it brings. Terrific opportunity for women and, and um and in fact, the men, in my experience, what I saw is that the jobs are, because labor is so cheap there, um, they have very low-grade equipment. So they'll have three men to do a job that one man in America might do because it's clunky, outdated technology that they're using. And um it's just they're, they're really low-grade jobs, you know. It hasn't filtered into any kind of prosperity for the people. In fact, the opposite. It's impoverished them beyond all, all measure. It's in, incalculable, their loss. Is, isn't actually going toward paying for the damages, it's going to restoration for the future, because so often people see these big numbers and think that this is this is an overreach. We had, you know, the whole 90s, people were consumed with the idea of tort reform, but the reality is these judgments come few and far between, and usually the judgments are, are very inferior. I, I'm curious what, from your perspective, it's like to go and visit a place like that, to see the consequences of what Chevron has done, and then to return to your own community to the entertainment community and try to tell people about what's going on because we've heard so much about the consequences of journalists who've tried to talk about these issues. I'm curious whether you've received any similar kind of pushback from the entertainment community or whether or not this case has fallen on some open ears, hearts, and minds. Uh, 
I have not been in the entertainment community. I mean, I'm, I live in my head in, in quite an activist world, and um, uh, and besides, the entertainment community tends to skew towards uh, people who are very open and um, uh, feel a lot of connectivity with human beings around the world. So that's I, I doubt that I will experience negative discrimination from that, though um, being considered a big mouth on the side of um, environmental politics might, I don't know. I don't, you know what? I don't even give a shit. I, who cares? Just do the right thing. The time is so short for the planet that all this fear of trying to protect ourselves and protect our names and protect our um our careers or whatever is appalling to me. And there's so many very much more influential people than me out there. I wish there was, um, I wish there were, I wish sports people would get on board. But um, anyway, we've got a free dons ago because as you all said, this is like the, this is like the plug that's holding in the eruption of the volcano. And if you get Donsger out, then you're going to release possibly the judgment for Lago, the people of Lago Agrio, then that's going to bring down the House of Cards of Chevron, uh, which is why they're fighting so hard and why it justifies them destroying an innocent man because they know that they have many billions of dollars of judgments extant already in the world, let alone, um, you know, things which have not yet been uh, dealt with. So, um, yeah, yeah. It starts with Donziger. We've got to get him out, seek justice, and save American justice at the same time because this is a horrible indictment of um, the loss of, of the executive. Um, they, they're usurping the power of the executive, right? If a, if a corporation can now go around the rules and go around all norms, flout all norms in order to um, push their own agenda and punish detractors or punish uh, lawyers who have successfully prosecuted them, then every other extractive industry is licking their chops at the prospects of just open slather on um, on the planet and its resources. I think that is all. Well, that's why they have been so vicious towards Stephen. Uh, two, oh, more yeah. than two years of house arrest with that ankle bracelet on, uh, the conditions of the prison where he is with people serving uh, serving time for some of the harshest harshest crimes. He will have a lot to say about that when he gets out. You know, the United Nations, United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights has condemned this case. They have called him a political prisoner. Uh, they have spoken of his human rights abuse. They've said that he should be freed and also compensated. And I think that's very, very important because the United States, of course, likes to think that we make a stand for human rights. And we want to make sure that President Biden hears from us um, in any way possible. Lucy, you're with a bunch of big mouth women tonight, so I hope yeah. you feel very much at home. At home yeah. and, and I would like to think that the women of the United States um, would have some things to say to our president, that if he wants to make a stand for human rights in the world, he should start right here at home. And it could begin by commuting yeah. uh, the sentence of Stephen Donziger. So I just have great admiration for you that you went there and that you speak as you do and tell us a very human story, which can only be told by someone who has seen it firsthand. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. And now we have, um, for an update on the case and where things stand from a legal perspective, Ron Kuby, he's a criminal defense and civil rights attorney, 
Um, he's represented a lot of notable clients and has been said he is a prosecutor's worst nightmare. <laughs> um, and he also represented Stephen in his trial before Judge Preska. Welcome, Ron. We're so glad to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Our pleasure. Ron, we've heard a little bit already about how we got to this point. But more recently, um, we had this uh, hearing where we got another little taste of exactly why people are characterizing this prosecution as biased. Can you tell us what the evidence is? What, what is it that we've seen that makes us feel like we had these two New York judges that have a vendetta out against Donzinger? What kind of things have we been seeing in the courtroom that lead us to that conclusion? You know, I don't say lightly that uh, uh, the system— is fundamentally unfair or that, that the result is preordained. Um, that's not something I, I, I tend to do, but I have never seen anything like this case in, in now almost 40 years of practice. Go back to 2010, Chevron went to the Obama Justice Department and asked them to prosecute Stephen Donziger. Uh, they refused. They said, no, you know what? We're not in the business of taking care of Chevron's legal problems, thank you so much, and they said no. Uh, they then engaged in, in this long history of uh, abusive abuse of discovery processes, and, and ultimately, uh, Judge Kaplan held Donziger in contempt of court for refusing to turn over his uh, computer, which contained all of his attorney-client materials, all his contacts with his clients, phone numbers, uh, 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 contact information, locations, things that, that he swore to his clients that he would never reveal to anybody. So Stephen does not abide by that order. And then Judge Kaplan not just holds him in civil contempt, but also holds him in criminal contempt. Very rarely done. It happens. Very rarely done, though. And, and, and then Kaplan goes to the Justice Department. This is now the Trump Justice Department and says, now, prosecute Donziger. And the Trump Justice Department says, no. And, and, and they say, we don't have the resources to do this, you know, which is like the, the most blatant lie you can imagine. The Justice Department has all the resources it needs to do whatever it wants to do. So then Judge Kaplan brings charges himself for violating, for Stevens violating the order. Okay, so Judge Kaplan is the aggrieved party Judge Kaplan also brings the charges. Then Judge Kaplan appoints a prosecutor. And, and he appoints a prosecutor with deep ties to the oil and gas industry. And a prosecutor whose law firm previously represented Chevron. Right? <laughs> Chevron. Huh? Of all the former prosecutors you can find, you know, uh, you happen to find one who used to represent Chevron. And he appoints a legal team at taxpayer expense. Uh, probably the bill is now run close to a million dollars. Okay, okay, that's bad. But wait, it gets worse. <laughs> then Judge Kaplan, instead of just sending the case out for random selection, specifically handpicks Judge Loretta Preska a very important member of the Federalist Society and somebody who shares Kaplan's corporatist agenda, he handpicks her to hear the case. And just in case something could possibly go wrong, he remains on the case as a judge. So to summarize, for the folks at home who may not have been keeping score, 
Judge Kaplan is the aggrieved party. Judge Kaplan is a witness. Judge Kaplan is the guy that brought the charges. Judge Kaplan is the guy that picked the prosecutor. Judge Kaplan is the guy that picked the judge. And Judge Kaplan is also the judge. Isn't the the whole point of appointing a prosecutor here to create distance between the person who is the aggrieved party and the person who's prosecuting the uh, contempt charge? Yes. Right. (laughs) And yet yet here we are. So, you know, all of this then hangs on this contempt charge, which is hanging on the fact that Donziger hasn't turned over his uh, privileged confidential attorney client information, which is not which should be the expectation that no one would turn it over for any attorney who had been practicing at all. Right. Right. So this is something hanging on a thing that's hanging on a thing that's hanging on a thing. And yet recently there was this colloquy I heard you speaking about in which the prosecutor was it was asked whether or not uh, if Joe Biden himself called into the courtroom and said, stop prosecuting the case, they still equivocated on whether or not they drop it. They, they, they did. So the case is on appeal to the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit. And like most uh, appeals courts, they have absolutely no interest in Stephen Donziger as a human, no interest in his situation, which is, is pretty bleak, um, and, and not a lot of interest in the details of the case. What they're fascinated by is a little-known portion of the Constitution called the Appointments Clause. And I will not begin to explain it because it just is, is, is something that everybody in law school like sleeps through. But, I don't remember but for, it. <laughs> yeah, no, and, and for good reason. But, but fundamentally, the, the question is, if you have somebody who's going to exercise executive power, that is the power to prosecute people, you know, subpoena witnesses and call witnesses to the stand in the name of the United States of America, and that person is not confirmed by the Senate of the United States, then that person has to be supervised by somebody who has been confirmed by the Senate of the United States. It's one of the lesser known checks or balances. It's simple enough. We have federal prosecutors. They're accountable to their bosses who are ultimately accountable to the attorney general who was confirmed by the Senate. Um, In this case, the prosecutor has always taken the position that she's not accountable to anyone. And even took that position um, in the Court of Appeals when they pressed her directly. Um, All she would say is she would inform the court of, you know, the phone call and she would seek to be relieved of the case. But she never said, yes, of course, I would walk away if the president and the attorney general got on a conference call and fired me. Jeez. Wow. Yeah, no, it's 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 bad. And Ron, obviously, the charges against Stephen were complete bullshit, as Brianna just laid out this idea that, you know, he was withholding his laptop when his laptop had all these privileged communications. But even if he was guilty, has there ever been an instance of a lawyer serving six months in prison on top of two plus years of home confinement for what basically amounts to, you know, a dispute over the discovery process? No, no, not even not even close. Um, Lawyers typically who are held in in for criminal contempt uh, don't face any form of pretrial restraint at all. Uh, And Stephen has has not only earned the the most pretrial restraint in the history of this country, but he's also 
earned the longest jail sentence uh, for an attorney uh, found guilty of contempt. So he he holds multiple records. Well, Guinness. Ron, how, how is this not basically a political show trial? And doesn't this loophole, the very fact that it exists, create the possibility of other such political show trials in the future? Is there anything we can do to close this? <laughs> Well, I, I think one, I mean, just as a legal matter, one of the things that's happened in Stephen's case is, is because this power is used so rarely, there's seldom much attention that's paid to it. It's used in the obscure corners of the law. It's never been used in, in a, a case quite this high profile. And a lot of people are beginning to ask the question as to whether judges should have this power this way. There are at least two United States senators who have raised questions about the way the prosecution was appointed. So we'll see what ultimately happens. Certainly the appellate decision that we're waiting for could very well be the thing that puts an end to this practice. But it was a show trial. And and the outcome was absolutely preordained from the beginning. Um, I, I could not have done a worse job in terms of outcome since he got convicted of everything and got the maximum sentence. But we all knew that was going to happen. We just tried to make sure that we put on the show that we wanted to put on, get those those uh, uh, corporate lawyers on the witness stand, talk about the way they they spend three million dollars of Chevron's money to allegedly recover eight hundred and thirteen thousand dollars from Stephen Donziger and never got a penny. Th those kinds of things, the, the outrageous billing, the tremendous amount of of energy spent for no apparent purpose other than demonizing Stephen Donziger. Yeah. yeah. And, and finally, Ron, um, we have people uh, contributing to freedonziger.com. We also have them giving in the super chat right now of the live stream. That money's also all going to be donated. I'm going to shout out a few names here. Thank you to Patricia. Thank you to Hoodwinked. Thank you to Trista, ID8 or... Uh, Jelperman. <laughs> There's all kinds of people who are, are giving money in the super chat and hopefully going to freedonziger.com as well. But what would you ask people to do from an activist perspective? Is it is it call Merrick Garland? Is it call their congressional representative? What should they do? What should they say? What's the script? I mean, all of those things would be worthwhile. Ask the president for a commutation. Ask, write to the attorney general. Uh, go to your members of Congress and ask, why is this man in this prison for these offenses for this period of time and, and demand some sort of action? All of those things are, are <laughs> as worthwhile doing as, as anything else. Uh, you know, I, I have no expectation, uh, given what I've seen of the Biden Justice Department, that that much is going to happen. But I always have hopes, if not expectations. And I do want to say one last thing, if I might um, grab some time from the next person. Um, you know, Stephen's case is remarkably complicated legally. I mean, it goes back decades and decades in some of the most advanced process that most lawyers have, have never encountered in their lives. And it's easy to look at the case in retrospect and say, Wow, gee, Stephen really should have filed a petition for writ of mandamus at this point, so his collateral bar argument wasn't foreclosed. It, it, it's easy to find flaws with the way Stephen litigated the case. And hopefully law students and, and law professors are going to say, oh, look what happened to Donziger. Let's try to do this this way instead of that way. 
But but something that's fundamental um, is that from the very beginning, Stephen Donziger made the decision that he is not going to betray his clients. He mm-hmm. drew that line. He adopted that principle and he stuck with it. And in, in an era where where people's principles end up, you know, as disposable as their compost, uh, the, the fact that Stephen Donziger gave up his law license gave up his freedom, walked into jail when he didn't have to because he was not going to violate a promise that he made to the people that he cared about. I mean, that's a totally admirable thing. And if law students and, and, and young lawyers take away anything, it's, it's figure out what your principles are, you know, before you walk into the courtroom and, and live them, because that's a very real form of solidarity. Mm. Very well said. Hey, Ron, thank you so much for your time, for laying it all out for us. Thank you for your work on this case. Take care. Um, I want to thank you guys again for all the contributions that are rolling in. We see them right in front of our eyes. Um, I know Stephen would be incredibly grateful. We want to shift a little bit to the lack of media coverage (laughs) of this case. I mean, it was incredible. All of us doing what we could, interviewing Stephen, talking about it, doing segments on it, everything we can. And I think finally, after he was already yeah. in prison, finally, right. Jake Tapper does one segment yeah. on it, Katie. Yeah, a lot. Yeah. So Donald it's, did something yeah. the other day. I mean, look, they got rid of uh, Chris Cuomo, too, a little bit late. But, you know, they get to Stephen Donziger's case after he's locked up. Well, how many television shows do you watch where Chevron is advertising? Oh, right. Of course. I mean, yeah. Come on. Yeah. No, I mean, that's exactly it. And then, you know, it's too easy also because of who Stephen was representing, who he was fighting for, people who don't have a lobbyist here in this town, who aren't getting invited to the fancy holiday parties that everybody's going to right now in D.C., becomes very easy to ignore them and pretend that none right. of this is happening. Yeah. yeah. I love that Jake Tapper did a segment on me flubbing a Bloomberg fact before he ever covered <laughs> Donziger. <laughs> 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 Unforgivable, Brianna. I'm you sorry. can take this moment to apologize. I, I'm like. sorry for saying that he had a heart attack instead of a stent replacement. My bad. <laughs> I'm right. officially sorry, but we'll not sorry it. for covering Donziger. We'll think about that. <laughs> We're going to scratch the free Donziger and make it a free, free stream. <laughs> All right. Next up to to talk about the media, someone who is expert in this as well is uh, someone you guys probably all know really well, David Sirota. He's, of course, a regular with all of us. He's also Bernie 2020 alum who That's can share right. some of those war stories as well. Um, and the founder of Daily Poster and has a podcast and has, oh, no big deal, a movie coming out with like every actor that you've <laughs> ever heard of in your entire life. David, great to see you. Good to see you. It's been a, it's been a busy year. Yes, indeed. You have certainly had a busy year. Um, so just weigh in on the discussion we were just having. What is it about this case that made the media just decide they were not going to they were just going to pretend it didn't exist whatsoever? I think a couple things. I think there's a lot of details to this case. So if you want to cover it, you have to not be lazy. You have to take it. You have to take the reporting seriously. You have to take the details seriously. Um, I think that unfortunately, in our current society, um, a lot of Journalism doesn't really want to question uh, a powerful industry and a powerful company like Chevron. Uh, And this case is about 
Chevron dealing uh, with one of its critics. So I think the message that this case is designed to send on Chevron's behalf is don't question uh, companies like Chevron. Don't question uh, uh, the oil industry because there will be consequences if you question or challenge uh, those industries. So I think those two things, the idea that it would take it takes work to actually report on this. It's not an easy uh, a story to report on. Uh, and there is an additional uh, implicit threat of, of consequences for reporting on this. I think that's deterred a lot of a lot of journalism on this, even though it is such a landmark case. And I think that can't be overstated how important and precedent setting this case is. This case is designed to send a larger message way beyond Stephen Donziger, to send a message to anyone and everyone, activists, uh, journalists, uh, regular citizens, uh, to send a message that you should not try to ask tough questions uh, of the oil industry. Do not try to challenge the power of the fossil fuel industry uh, because there will be uh, there will be hell to pay if you do that. And David, can you talk about the conflicts of interest at stake here? I mean, why is it so easy for these media companies to ignore stories like this? And what kind of hold does Chevron and the fossil fuels, uh, larger fossil fuel industries have on the media? Well, look, I mean, we know that Chevron funds all sorts of, uh, through sponsorships and the like, all sorts of media. I mean, you could look no further than, than the Washington gossip sheets uh, that are, quote unquote, presented by Chevron. I mean, that's there are Washington uh, news outlets where at the top of the uh, of the news of the day, it says presented by Chevron. So I think corporate media as a whole knows who its paymasters are. Uh, and so messing with its paymasters is just not something that corporate media is always or typically looking to do. Now, that's not to argue not to argue that there are, that, that media outlets are getting orders from specific companies, but it is to say that industries know uh, who who is paying their salaries, and Chevron throws a lot of money around. It also throws a lot of campaign contributions around. So Chevron is known as a major uh, corporate player. Uh, also, the conflicts of interest within the case. I mean, you've got Chevron ties to the private law firm that was uh, essentially uh, appointed by the government uh, to prosecute this case. And this is the thing I think a lot of people don't really fully understand uh, about this case, which is why this case is so important. The power to incarcerate uh, people has typically been exclusively the power of the democratically, small d, democratically elected government. We elect prosecutors, we elect uh, uh, governors, we elect uh, federal officials who then appoint prosecutors, that the prosecutorial apparatus, the power, the ultimate power to put people in jail has resided in the hands of the people. That's part of the democratic, uh, a democratic society. Uh, and But what's happened in this case is the prosecutors uh, of the people, the Southern District of New York, as an example, decided not to prosecute Steve Donziger. And then an appointed judge appointed a private law firm, essentially gave a private non-democratic entity, a, a private corporate law firm, the power of the state to incarcerate uh, Chevron's biggest critic. That's what's so terrifying about this case. That's what's so terrifying 
beyond uh, the human rights violation, I would argue, uh, that Steve Donziger faces. This is a threat against everybody, saying that the government is willing to put that sacred power in the hands of a private entity to go after the critic of a private corporation. And, you know, I think there's something to, there's a class element to this as well, because Stephen Donziger went to Harvard Law. He was at Harvard with Obama, Obama yeah. okay? He's, you know, had the, the world of law as his oyster, could have gone out there and made millions of dollars doing any sorts of soulless things that Brianna could also have done had she yeah. chosen, so chosen. He decided um, to do think that about post every day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. But Donziger, in a very real way, he was a class traitor, you know? And so he went out and represented poor people in Ecuador Rather than taking that easy path to, you know, riches and the nice life. And in a sense, he's also being punished for for being a class traitor in that way, which I think is a part of the element of why the media is a little uncomfortable with this story. Hmm. I think that's a really good point. I mean, Steve Donziger, his profile is unorthodox. I mean, he is what uh, the corporate establishment doesn't want people yeah. to come out of. Uh, elite law schools to use their skills and their powers for. Uh, so I, I would agree with you. I mean, people with that pedigree often go into uh, defending the establishment, defending Questions. corporate power. Uh, he broke from that. And I think you're right. That That is seen. It's, it's seen as blasphemy. It's seen as apostasy. Uh, and I think, I think the kind of media elite uh, has trouble forgiving him for that. I think, actually, that there are a lot of human rights activists and a lot of human rights lawyers and environmental activists working hard every single day. And I think it's because so many are active, because the fossil fuel companies are seeing the activism of people such as 100,000 people outside uh, COP at Glasgow, that they have decided to use this case as a very loud message. Just like, you know, I'm old enough to remember the assassination of Bobby Kennedy, Martin Luther King. That was a very loud message to an entire generation to go home and leave the public sector to whoever wanted to control it so badly they were willing to kill in order to do so. This is a loud message to all of us, including many, many human rights activists and environmentalists over, uh, uh, out there. I think, Brianna, you had already talked and Ron had talked about the lawyers who know how important client attorney uh, privileges, privilege that, um, that when you're talking about environmental activists in Ecuador— what it would have meant to let Chevron know who they were, what sentence. the names are, where they live. But every single activist and every single environmentalist from now on, and all of us just as citizens, seeing the viciousness with which Chevron has come after Stephen, it is already having the desired result, which is why it's so important that we're here. All of us could now say, I don't know if I want to go that far, because mm. we know what they do. And that's why it's so important that Chevron sees all of us here now. And I hope all of you who are watching will just, you know, it's like I often feel, you know, women are told that if you're mugged in a back alley, just start yelling. Just start yelling. We have to just keep yelling about this. Use your feeds, use your Instagram, use your Twitter, use your TikTok, use your whatever you're on, and don't stop talking about it. Be the big mouths that we're certainly trying to be, that Lucy Lawless is. Obviously, give money, um, freedonziger.com, but give your voice to this. And, uh, and I, I, I gotta tell you, when you talk about this, this, unholy relationship, this undemocratic with a small d relationship between government and corporation in this case, that is the essence of fascism. 
That is the <laughs> essence of fascism. This must stop now. We must respond to this now. And that's why I'm so glad to be here with my friends and with all of you. And David, a lot of people have rightly made a lot of noise about fascism over the past couple of years. And some of those same people, especially media types, on this case, yeah. nowhere to be found. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this is this is the example of it—the the fusing of, of private power and, Absolutely. and state yeah. power. I mean, that, that that is what this case really is, and really is all about. And and you're right; it's just still it's still off the radar. I mean, I think it's more on the radar now uh, because because uh, Steve Stephen Donziger is in, is in jail, and I think I, I I think there was kind of like a. A little bit of a, I can't believe this is happening. This, you know, mm-hmm. something, someone's going to intervene and stop this. And guess what? Nobody intervened and yeah. stopped this. Uh, and, and, and and so I think I think there was kind of a uh, people expect there was a, a lot of folks expecting that s- somebody would fix this. But it, but no one's going to fix this no. unless unless there's a demand. Yeah. And I think also we should, for those uh, who identify with the Democratic Party, when you look at something like the UN, United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights. Speaking as it has in this case, and our president and a Democratic administration ignoring that, if the Trump administration ignored the United Nations like that, we'd all be like, oh, how terrible Trump is. We really have to get it in our minds. So many things that started with Republicans, but Democrats have not stopped. Mm -hmm. And at this point, the the quietude on the part of a Democratic administration about this is something none of us should be happy about and all of us should be talking about. Yeah, it says everything. David, thank, thank you, you so, so much. much. Thank, thank you for the you, work David, you do. Well. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you do you such a great th- job th- highlighting issues like this that other you, people yes. aren't talking about. Thank Everyone you. read the and Daily th- Poster. Thanks for doing this. I really appreciate it. it and his great reporting right. on that. David has done amazing reporting on this, by the way. Oh, I mean, listen, I, it, David actually at the Daily Poster focuses on the real issues that make right. things happen yeah. in this town. Relentlessly focused on money, exposing. I mean, you brought up the way that Chevron is the paymaster of so many of these companies sponsoring, you know, Politico playbook. He's all over that kind of reporting. And if you're not following the money and the power trail, then you're not going to understand what's happening in this case or anywhere else in this town. So, guys, if you're able to subscribe to The Daily Poster, they do incredible work. I think that that's that's just a the the commentary on independent media and why it's so important today. When you look at the corporate conglomeratization of the media, it's no different than the corporate conglomeratization of the fossil fuel companies or big pharmaceutical companies or anything else. It's all one big corporate matrix and they scratch each other's back and they, they partner with each other. And nobody can say today, you know, sometimes people say, well, I just don't know all the facts, but between Brianna and you, Crystal, and, and, uh, and um, people like, like uh, David Sirota, you can't really say today that the facts aren't there. They are there. They're available. And it's our responsibility as citizens to know the facts and to articulate them as best we can. You, you see that weaponized, too, um, not just on this issue, but you see it around climate change. You see it around police reform or where the complexity of it is yes. weaponized. Nuance. To yeah, it's nuanced. People. Yep. Right. But, I think what's important is that it's not as complex as they want you to think. That's it's it. not so complicated. That's it, exactly. Short-term profit maximization for these huge corporate entities is the bottom line. 
That's the simple truth. It's the simple yes. truth we need to be clear about. Yes. There's also this, this exactly. institutional problem yes. that happens with journalism where journalists are not, for the most part, very well paid. They're on very short deadlines. Half of them are being pushed to write these like, 10 blog posts a day. And then you're confronted with an issue like this where you have to basically teach yourself all these legal complexities, dig into decades' worth of history. And having been in that position, I was lucky enough to be at an institution at The Intercept where I had the time and space to do those sorts of things. Nine out of 10 journalists don't, even if they're so inclined. And so many of these people, they don't also feel so confident and empowered to become the experts. In that so many people would be absolutely up in arms over if it happened under Trump. They'd but be calling it fascism. They'd be calling it you know, everything we want, we are supposed to fear from Trump. And because this happens under Biden, what's up, Merrick Garland? I thought you guys were down with the rule of law. I thought you guys were the smart guys who went to Harvard. Well, it Why reminds are you doing me this? very much of the continued prosecution of Assange. Julian Assange. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, under, it's very much like yeah. the prosecution Under Obama, mm -hmm. the Obama yes. people, they wanted to go after but him. They didn't. Believe mm -hmm. you me. Right. But they, they looked at the law and they said, we don't know how we go after Julian Assange and don't also implicate the New York, the New York, York Times, Times, the Guardian, the Guardian the Pais, everybody yeah. else. So they said, we're not going to do it. Trump yeah. took the, with Bill Barr, took a very aggressive stance. I mean, yeah, first, they considered, first they considered assassinating him. Yeah. And then they took the quote unquote moderate route <laughs> of prosecuting him in uh, what is an all out assault on journalism. And the Biden administration has gone right along with it. They haven't said anything about it, but they have not changed course. They have de facto endorsed Trump's outrageous assault on Julian Assange. And it's the same thing here. They've, They've appealed the extradition the decision. And yeah. Julian Assange is at much greater same. risk than Stephen yeah. Donziger. Stephen, Stephen Donziger will get out of prison, whether it's the entire six months or not. They want to just, yeah. they, they want to keep Assange in prison forever. And also we want to remember in terms of journalists, the articles that used to get a journalist a Pulitzer Prize is liable today to get the journalist fired. That's right. Uh, is the article that the editor would say, no, you're not allowed to do that, which is just a plug for independent media. And maybe some of those journalists out there, you don't have to go with a corporate uh, uh, with the corporate guys if they won't let you do the well, job. And speaking you know, of Pulitzer yeah, Prizes. Speaking of Pulitzer Prizes and people who are no longer welcome in mainstream media because of their truth-telling, Chris Hedges is our next, next uh -huh. guest. He is a Pulitzer Prize winner, um, former foreign correspondent and bureau chief in the Middle East and the Balkans for 15 years for the New York Times. He's worked for the Dallas Morning News, Christian Science Monitor, NPR, um, host of the Emmy Award-nominated RT America show on Contact. Um, great to have you, an incredible speaker, author, activist, journalist, Chris Hedges. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for doing this. Oh, it's our pleasure. Um, and we really are grateful for you taking the time. You know, we were just having a conversation about the media that I think you could probably weigh in with some expertise on as well. And one of the things I was thinking about is, you know, there's a, a class dynamic. There's, a um, you know, the fact that Chevron is sponsoring some of these media uh, conglomerates. But there's also the fact that it's much easier and more comfortable to punch down. You know, it's much easier to pick out like, you know, this the lady being obnoxious with not wanting to put her mask on or whatever. She's not going to have highly paid lawyers. She's not going to be running advertisements on your network. And so that's a lot easier and a lot more comfortable than actually laying out the facts of such an important and significant case as what's going on with Stephen Donziger. Well, that's, of course, Glenn Greenwald's criticism of The Intercept, mm -hmm. uh, which I share. It is a lot easier to punch down. It doesn't cost you anything. Uh, and uh, the fact is, corporate power for a long time has just been unassailable. 
within uh, corporate dominated commercial media. So you go back and look at Seymour, Seymour Hirsch. He's, he left the New York Times after he did a big investigative piece on Gulf and Western, uh, which owned Paramount Pictures. Uh, and uh, the Times just neutered it. And he walked out. He writes his, in his memoir, Reporter, which is a very good book. But that was it. I realized that uh, the mainstream media was just not going to take on corporate power. And you can look at the way the Times <coughs> has failed to cover the Donziger case. And the fact is the Times had set up its own advertising company <coughs> to uh, create ads uh, for their clients. So the clients would hire, the, it's called T-Brand, and the biggest uh, client is Chevron. Mm. Uh, so the, the Times just won't take on corporate power. That That's not particularly new. Um, I mean, if you'd read the business section of the New York Times, in the months leading up to the 2008 financial meltdown, you wouldn't have had a clue uh, that the meltdown was coming. Uh, they're completely in bed with corporate power. That's also true, of course, with the Democratic Party, uh, which I find quite uh, chilling because what the Democratic Party is doing by uh, refusing to distance themselves from corporate power is ensuring uh, almost certainly the loss of the House. And uh, the election of either Trump or a Trump-like uh, figure uh, in 2024, the, dis the difference this time around is the vindictiveness, the fact that uh, whoever comes into power will be on, uh, uh, will have a policy who's... Oh, no. Well, uh, more corporate media censorship. <laughs> I guess the CIA. Well, what's interesting about... Some of that critique is that I think both of us have recently interviewed um, Batya Angarsaryan um, about her critique of the media, which is that, you know, it's become more elitist over time. It's been increasingly deciding that the, 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 the metric by which it was going to make money was not going to be to sell papers to the working class at a penny a pop, but instead to cultivate this advertiser base where they can get much more money in advertising. And that changes the nature of the coverage. I think if I were to have one critique of that analysis is that she doesn't emphasize sufficiently the extent to which all of these outlets, regardless of their political leaning, are aligned in the extent to which that they are in cahoots entirely with these elite interests. And it's not so much a partisan issue, but this top-down issue, which really begs the question, how do we get out of it? We're not going to be able to vote our way out of that kind of media capture. And of course, it's very heartening to be on a panel with all of you ladies who have broken through an independent media in the way that you have done. But it's also incredibly dispiriting to see even someone like Chris Hedges, who's been marginalized in the way he has, despite his can get good Wi-Fi. Good Wi-Fi. I think we have him back, though. There he is. There he is, you see? Fight the power. I'm not even on Wi-Fi. I'm, I'm, uh, I have an Ethernet cable, so I don't know what happened. Oh, my God. Oh, so, wow. wow. They really yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. were interfering. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Chris, do you think the thing that it's gotten worse, like with the New York Times and the time that you were there till now, are these the same sort of problems that you saw when you were there? And then to Brianna's point, do you, is, the, is the answer independent media? Is it changing the business models? Is it boycotts? What do you think that are some possible solutions? Well, it's always been solutions? independent media. So I write now for Shear Post, uh, run by Bob Shear, who was the editor of Ramparts Magazine, uh, a magazine that never made any money. Uh, Bob has a special knack for never making money. Um, <laughs> but did serious journalism, exposed COINTELPRO, published that iconic wow. photo of the little girl running naked down the road in Vietnam, burned by wow. napalm. Which, you know, uh, 
a lot of people don't know, but King was at an airport with Ralph Abernathy and opened up ramparts and saw that picture and pushed his food away. And Abernathy said, is there something wrong with your food? And, and King said, nothing's going to taste right until I denounce this war. It came at that moment. So uh, the whole uh, coverage of the debacle in Vietnam, the, the alternative non-commercial press has always shamed uh, the traditional press into doing their job. Uh, and that's exactly what Julian Assange did. Julian, uh, the, the, there was always a deep animus towards Julian. Uh, but Julian, uh, to, to not publish that material, uh, would have exposed the complicity of the establishment press with the power elite. And that's why, of course, once that material, once they took that material from Julian and WikiLeaks, they turned on him. And it has been part of the uh, effort to, uh, I mean, Bill Keller began it almost immediately in this horrible column about how Julian smelled. And I mean, it's just, just terrible, terrible. Mm -hmm. So... Uh, there, there's always been that kind of tension. Is it worse now? Yes. It's worse now uh, for a couple reasons. One, because of the corporate consolidation of media, it's no longer a media empire. Uh, but you have uh, CNN, MSNBC, I mean, all this, they are owned by large corporations and they are just one revenue stream competing against hundreds of other revenue streams. Uh, and their primary goal is have to is that they have to make a profit. Uh, so Zucker was brought in from, uh, I guess it was NBC. I don't have a TV, but where you know where he had created a fictional persona of Trump uh, to turn CNN into the kind of burlesque uh, that it has become. Uh, but it's all it's all number one. That's that consolidation has essentially uh, turned media outlets or, or forced media outlets to be defined almost exclusively by their profitability, which has, uh, of course, degraded journalism itself. And then secondly, uh, and I saw you have in your back background, both Taibbi's book and uh, Ed Herman and Chomsky's book, Manufacturing Consent. Both are great books, but uh, Matt has kind of updated the shift in the media landscape, where instead of having a few, a handful of powerful media conglomerates, like three major networks that seek to uh, essentially uh, uh, capture uh, a, a disparate audience in terms of political views, you now have media siloed uh, and catering to particular demographics, which is what I saw in Yugoslavia. I covered the war in Yugoslavia uh, for the New York Times. And, uh, and so you cater that demographic and you demonize the other demographic. And that is as true for CNN and MSNBC as it is for Fox and Breitbart and everyone else. But that's very dangerous because you widen that kind of divide. You create alternative forms of reality. You make any kind of communication impossible. So, yes, the media landscape is severely degraded from when I began as a young reporter covering the war in El Salvador uh, in the early 1980s. And I would argue at this point, the electronic media, by and large, does almost no journalism. I mean, the <clears throat> Rachel Maddow and Chris Como and uh, Wolf Blitzer, who got to start working for APAC. I mean, uh, you know, uh, George Stephanopoulos. I mean, these people aren't journalists. I mean, every time you hear a discussion about wars in the Middle East or the intelligence community, they're vomiting up these uh, retreads from the intelligence community, Clapper, Brennan. Uh, and they, they, of course, they're all sitting on defense contractor boards. So, yes, the, 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 the kind of 
um, corruption and the kind of a decay within the media landscape and, and going back to when I began as a journalist is frightening and deep. Yeah. And Chris, I mean, one of the things that, that I think about when I see how this story just sort of fell into a black hole in terms of media coverage, I do want to give credit. I think Lawrence O'Donnell did one or yeah. two segments um, over on MSNBC and Jake Tapper, after Stephen was already in prison, yeah. decided that he would do a segment on this is it doesn't fit into that narrative of the thing that you should be most terrified of is, you know, your uncle who has wacky political views, or if you're Fox News, the liberal who's coming to destroy your family and your school or whatever their narrative is. It doesn't really fit into those storylines, which they're, you know, desperately trying to hold on to to try to juice their ratings and up their advertiser dollars. So they're not interested in it. Well, I think we'd all agree on the bad news. We'd all agree on the world that's dying. But I think we need to remember the world that's struggling to be born. And it's also in evidence here. When I first heard about Stephen, started talking about him, nobody was talking about him. And now look at it. Look how it starts, how the energy has grown about Stephen. Look at all of the independent media. Look at the fact that we're here. And, you know, you, I, I think we, sometimes you don't see above the waterline yet. The effect, but you can feel the energy of this revolutionary fervor that's happening now. Mm. And I think that we should all, um, I mean, Chris Hedges has prepared a generation of us mm. to know what we know and to be saying what we're saying. So I don't want to just uh, talk about the bad news. I mean, we're here. The fact that people are watching this, the fact that people are talking about Donziger and all of the other things that Chris has articulated and that we all articulate every day. You know, John F. Kennedy said, those who make peaceful revolution impossible make violent revolution inevitable. There's a revolution, and it's got to be a peaceful revolution, and to me, we're having it. So you mentioned the crucifixion. Jump right to the resurrection. You mentioned the slavery in Egypt, but let's jump right to the promised land, and I think we are doing it. We're not just—it's not even just we need to talk about it. Since we're doing it, mm. I think we can be excited about it. And just Chris Hedges, I just—I I, I mean— you have prepared and informed and educated and articulated so much. And the fact that you lend your voice to this particular case for Stephen Donziger as such an example to all of us. And I think so many of us, because of what you have taught us, you and others, really know what to do with Stephen Donziger right now. And that is to have this line in the sand and push back against Chevron, just as our ancestors well, I, I, have pushed I, back I, against I, others. I, in that I time. agree. And, and I think that the collapse of the media is reflected in the uh, in the opinion polls about the media, which has exactly. very low approval ratings. I would say that the way to hit back is to build a boycott against Chevron, Texaco, and Caltex, which are the two uh, gas uh, oil distributors that uh, Chevron owns throughout the country. I mean, nobody should be buying that gas there. Yeah. Okay, what are those two companies? Uh -oh. What's starting here? Chevron bought Texaco. So but I thought Texaco, Texaco didn't even station, any Chevron station or any Caltech station. Those we should not be buying. And in fact, activists should be handing out flyers to people who do buy gas there, explaining the Donziger case. I think that. Okay, is. so everybody hashtag boycott Chevron. Yes. Right? Yeah. Chevron, hashtag Texaco, and Caltech. Another thing we're asking people to do, Chris, and I want to um, recognize some of the folks who are giving in the super chat. We've got Jordan, who just gave, Kristen, 
Nicholas says, I hope this doesn't bounce my rent check, guys. Don't bounce your rent checks, yeah. but we do appreciate you. David, um, so many people are giving money to Stevens Legal Defense Fund because, as we know, Chevron has tried to absolutely destroy this man. So you can either give through the Super Chat or through freedonziger.com. Um, the link is right there. Chris Hedges, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much for your time this no, evening. thanks for doing it. Thanks thank for, for bringing awareness to this. Thank you for your, you know, your work over many years. Yeah, Thank, thank, you. thank you so thank much, Chris. You. Come back okay. on soon. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Wow, that's great, guys. This is great. It's great. I'm Hero. People seem like they look hard. I've seen I had Marianne on and Chris on before. You, I don't. You, you don't get starstruck a lot. But Wait, you get together? A little, no, yeah. You get a little Chris starstruck in a good way. Well, I think he deserves the. I know he does. It's, deserve but it's it. it's cool because you you don't yeah. get starstruck. You, oh, I feel the view vibe already. You know <laughs> what I? On the view. <laughs> right, you know Joy. the thing about yeah. about Chris. I really admire a certain personality trait he has, which is that I am very much my natural instinct is pleaser. Like I'm <laughs> always, you know, gauging is everybody good? Are they happy with me? Yeah. That he's like. Some of the things that he's done that have made people so uncomfortable but have been so true yeah. and so right, I just so admire that because it's a for me, it's a very uncomfortable feeling. And I feel like he just goes out. It's like Lucy Lawless, the big mouth thing. Like, yeah. she's like I don't give a fuck. I'm just going to say what I need to say because life is short. I he think has if that quality. everything you're saying is getting applause all the time, you're probably not saying the right stuff yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I welcome their hatred. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's it. Yeah. That's it right there. Yeah. If you're not inconveniencing somebody, God knows a lot of the people we're talking about tonight deserve, need to be inconvenienced, including yeah. the president of the United States yeah. on this issue. Let's not yeah. forget that. Oh, 100%. 100%. It really is egregious. And this that's the other part of, you know, the media conversation that if it was Trump, it was Trump yeah. you it's, know, it, if it, it yeah. The conversation would be if the UN was calling out Trump in this oh, way and Amnesty is ignoring the United and, yeah, exactly. Nobel right. This is a stain on our on our nation's history. history. This is a dark moment. It's all those things. It's just Biden happens to be president. Yeah, but and all the, so where's the apocalyptic language? Yeah, right. Don Jr. said this was a litmus test for oh. Joe Biden, and I think about That's that as said. we have these conversations about how the Democratic Party is going to prove that Democrats should be in charge as we head into midterms. I think about that as we face down the possibility of another Trump-Biden matchup. And I think about all the ways that the environment in particular was used as a bully tool to get people to fall in line and go ahead and vote for Joe Biden. And if he continues to turn the other way when such egregious happenings like this are going on, as he ignores climate protesters, as he betrays so many of his climate promises, then he's going to have a very difficult case to make that the marginal incremental Efforts that are being made right now, as we saw the slashes to the Build Back Better climate plan, et cetera, are going to be enough. May to not justify. even pass even that, like, right. you know, little... quarter of the trivial 5% of what it needs right. to be. And I may not this... even pass. <laughs> right. Yeah. And Written by Joe Manchin. <laughs> right. Thank you. That's wonderful. Right. And that's not an <laughs> argument, you know, that's not a, uh, an argument against Joe Biden. So many people will say, oh, you, this is like a, you're a pro Trump argument here because you want Joe Biden to fail. No, it's, it's reading the tea leaves and saying, you are going to be in the exact same position you were four years ago, making the case to people that the environment is the be-all, end-all, cataclysmic, you must vote no, blue no matter who issue. Yep. And if you won't even do what's necessary to save the environment from killing all of us and having the steamroll effect that we all know exists with um, climate uh, refugees and all of the rest of it, well, then you're going to have absolutely no credibility at the yeah. ballot box. It's, it's using the language of World War II mobilization 
existential threat. And then when you get in the in office, it's oh, but the filibuster right. yeah. and the it's parliamentarian. The parliamentarian. Guys, the, you know, it's really hard. <laughs> that is the parliamentarian. It's really hard really. for Joe Manchin. The part that's hard that's for me exactly to understand right. is what's been pointed out by Bridge is now pointed out by Chris. It's terrible politics. Yeah, there is now consensus on so much of the right as well as the left that we're being screwed by a corporate corporate America and by these huge multinational corporate entities. Whoever would claim that Republican or Democrat. Um, that populist fervor. And of course, in 2016, that rising populist fervor was so obvious. And you had the authoritarian populist in Trump and you had, of course, the progressive populist in Bernie. And it was the corporate Democrats that didn't want that language, uh, didn't want that message put out there. But it is being put out there. And more importantly, it is being felt by the people who will vote accordingly in 2022 and 2024. For better or worse. For better or for worse. That is right. Um, I think we have some additional. Yeah, we have some more. So I got, I got a shout out. To I got to say hi to my people. Can I just mention Dude, that? I, this, okay, so hi, everyone. Welcome to the Katie Helper Show. Hi, people. The, the Katie Helper <laughs> Show meets many more shows and many more co-hosts, and we're all coming together for the Steven Donziger stream to free Steven Donziger. And hello, everyone, all my Katie Helper Show people. I see a lot of you donating to Steven Donziger through the subchat. So you are seen. Um, but we also got a statement. One the one member of Congress who has the strength and courage to make a statement for this uh, stream, yes. Chewy Garcia. Um, Super grateful for that. Very grateful. Um, he uh, taped a message uh, of support, so we're going to play that. Hi, I'm Congressman Jesus Chuy Garcia, and I represent the 4th District of Illinois. I'm honored to join this evening's event and to say loud and clear from the halls of Congress the Department of Justice must free Steve Donziger and hold polluters accountable. For now, Stephen's case exemplifies a pattern of systemic failure to bring corporations to justice for their abuses. Chevron avoids paying millions of dollars it owes and collects government subsidies, while indigenous people in El Ecuador continue to suffer the disastrous effects of living in a polluted environment. And Stephen, who fought to bring fossil fuel companies to justice for poisoning those communities, now sits in jail. He's imprisoned in the United States after Chevron's years-long smear campaign against him is an indictment of our justice system and an attack on fairness and accountability. And here's the thing. However horrifying this case is, it's not unique. Polluters like Chevron get away with their messes all the time, often much closer to home. Neighborhoods in my district and across the country suffer the effects of dirty air, toxic waste, and water contamination by corporate polluters. As is often the case, the areas most affected are in minority communities, in poorer communities, so environmental justice means holding polluters accountable to affected communities. That applies from the streets of Chicago to the Amazon rainforest. And Steve Donsinger's release would be a small but mighty step toward a more accountable system. I urge the Department of Justice to heed the calls of the United Nations and human rights advocates everywhere and release Steve Donziger. Let's turn the page and begin a new chapter of environmental justice. 
super grateful for all those messages. Um, you know, we have seen a few members of Congress sending out words of support, um, but to have Congressman Garcia actually giving us uh, a message and something that he can put, that we could put on the live stream, um, actually really means a lot because, you know, independent media is amazing and we have big audiences that watch all of these things, but if elites and people in the halls of power aren't listening, right then ultimately, you know, it's it's unable to have the impact that it needs to have. So that makes a big difference. Who are the other, uh, you mentioned Rashida Tlaib, who are the other, there have been a few. Omar wrote, uh, signed a letter. Uh, many of them signed letters. AOC, but, you know, Corey everything Bush, that Crystal just said Presley. was the diplomatic, dignified, elegant way of saying, why the hell aren't those people here? I mean, we're sort of getting to the point. <laughs> yeah. Fair. Where, yeah. like, why aren't they here? Well, and, and you know, you see on the right, um, they would be here. They, they would be there. They, they, yeah, the power they of work their independent together. Media, yep. yes, right. they do. Yeah, they right. do. And on yeah. the left, they're like, oh, I know they run from us, just like the Democrats. They run from their base, women. and they run from their progressive. They run from their progressive. They get elected and they get. I don't fight. In. I really don't fight. <laughs> you know the I'm one. The one member who will go on all of our shows is Ro Khanna. Yes, yes, it's true. Give him credit for that. Even when takes his licks, have him on to like. Yell at him we about various things. Him show up. There's no excuse for how <laughs> nice I am with him. him. I never push back. Really? We got a no on this? Oh, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't who asked. I didn't he ask. wasn't assigned to me. Caught us. Oh, I didn't oh, drop the ball. So, yeah. Ro, so Ro, 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 Ro probably would have come on. He probably would have come on. What if one of my subscribers referred to him as a pain pig for being so willing to come on all of our shows all the time? Which I kind of love. So he should come he's on game. and be a pain big for he's us. Totally, he's totally game for it. He listens to the feedback, and I am grateful for he's that. Wonderful. Even though, you know, yeah. certain instances, we'd like him to, like yeah. all of them to push a little bit yeah. harder. And that is a perfect segue to our next guest, who knows something about holding people's feet to the fire. The one and only incomparable Nina Turner. She, of course, was campaign co-chair for Bernie 2020. She is a podcaster and a hoster in her own right over at TYT and, you know, someone that we all just absolutely love and adore and admire. Great to see you, Nina. And it was her birthday. Thanks, yes, happy birthday. Oh, yeah, it was her birthday. birthday. You and Chomsky. Nina, Nina, Nina and Chomsky. Gnome and Nina. <laughs> lots, of, lots of great Sagittarian energy over here. So now, turn. I want to open by asking you this question as someone who recently fought very valiantly to win a seat in Congress, um, who's been thinking a lot about the role that progressive Congress members can play if they do get elected. You know, what do you make of this, this list of people who have spoken out, but it's only, what, eight, eight congressmen, eight le electeds total who've decided to weigh in on the Don Zinger case and, and sign this letter. What do you think the role of elected representatives should be in this moment? Yeah, I think it was maybe nine of them, Bridge, or I was trying to keep up with it. But, you know, I mean, out of the numbers that are in the Congress, are uh, very low. So, yeah, shout out to the people, to the Congress members who did have the courage to sign that letter. And I'm really glad that you all are letting Ro, Congressman Ro kind of off the, off the hook here, because I think he would have shown up tonight. The role is to act absolutely leverage the power necessary to bring justice. And as the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, what affects one directly affects us all indirectly. That is indeed a truism. And it is a truism in this very moment. That is what is happening to our sisters and brothers and family and friends in Ecuador definitely impacts us because the Amazon is what the, the, the lungs of the world. And the fact that Chevron, Texaco, you know, 
have been able to get away with this for what almost 30 years now is really a stain on humanity. And so power is meant to be used because it's finite. You might, you will not always have it. And what better way to come together to not only stand up for the people of Ecuador, but in standing up for them, we really are standing up for ourselves. Mm. Why does it make so many of these elected representatives so nervous though? Like what are, what are the concerns that you think that they're weighing to not speak out in the first place, to not want to show up here, even to send in a little statement that we could play or anything like that. Like, what are, what are they weighing? Well, Crystal, I'm not sure. I certainly don't want to uh, try to get into their heads, but we know as a system, it is legal to bribe politicians in the United States of America. And so as you all have been having this con- these conversations with your other illustrious guests and also among yourselves, as uh, women who are shaking the world right about now, which I am so proud, it really comes down to the owner-donor class, plain and simple. And so something this magnitude, I mean, Stevens certainly is a humanitarian for what he is enduring, for what his family is enduring. And I am so proud of all of the activists, all of the people who don't have the fancy titles, who have been right by his side every step of the way. And for him to be able to use the power and the privilege that he has to be a justice giant in this moment. But Crystal, really, this comes down to, and this is really simple. I want people to follow me. This this is not complicated. Whose side are you on? Either you are on the side of justice or you are not. Either you are bought and paid for by the owner-donor class or you are not. Either you are willing to shake things up for something that has such an impact for us in our lives and then for future generations, or you are not. Whose side? are you on? And I want to encourage people to get involved, to donate, even if you can't go to protest, even if you can only give $2, $5, $27, $127, whatever you can do, time, talent, and treasure, this is a fight of our lifetime. And we cannot, we must not allow Chevron to win. You know, I was just thinking about the creation of the modern EPA, which was created in the 1970s. And I want to remind us walking down, you know, memory lane, The Cuyahoga River right here in my hometown was on fire because of pollution and neglect and oil was floating on the top of it. Uh, It it, it was impacted uh, since the 1800s. And it was because the Cuyahoga River was on fire that the modern EPA, as we know it now, which needs to be uh, revised a little bit. But the modern EPA, as we know it now, was born because that river was was on fire. And why was it born? Not just because people, politicians decided they wanted to do the right thing, but it came from an activist spirit that pushed for the EPA to be birthed. And we are pushing for a new birth right now. And that is why we got to stand up and stand right by the side of Stephen. And that new birth has to come not only from the activists, but also from these lawmakers. You know, one of the things that Howie Klein has made very clear to me, and Stephen has as well, I would say, well, this congressperson or that congressperson signed a letter. He says, Marianne, it can't stop there. Mm. When this letter was sent to Merrick Garland, Merrick Garland didn't even respond to these congresspeople. And then it just sort of died. You know, it's not enough to say that you're on the side of justice. It's not even enough to say you are concerned about the case against Stephen Donziger. I think it's time for some healthy shaming of certain people. Oh, yeah. Enough with it trying to get into their heads, as you said. (laughs) It's like, why aren't they making more of a stand, including the fact that they could be here as you are, Nina, which is why we love you. Yeah, Yeah, and your... 
We, I mean, I'm some just people shame when, whenever you guys are ready. I have a list. <laughs> and we know that you would be here with us tonight, even if you had one, you're right. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I, I would be oh, there. And whatever I don't think anyone has a question about that. Uh, whatever else I can do to be. But uh, you got um, Stephen's own members of Congress who didn't respond to petitions, to letters that were sent there. Um, Jerry Nadler, who has ties to Chevron or the fossil fuel industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gillibrand also mm-hmm. um, didn't respond. These are the people who allegedly represent. Uh, represent Stephen. Yes, represent Stephen. Schumer, where are these voices? Again, this is something, if this happened under Trump, I'd like to think that they'd be out up in arms. That's because the leadership of the Democratic Party is aligned with the corporatist agenda. Well, sometimes it takes a Republican. I mean, to your point about the EPA, Richard the EPA Nixon. was yeah, Nixon. under right, Nixon. Exactly, yeah. And it, yeah. I think that's not an accident. I think oftentimes the left is liberals broadly are unwilling yeah. to put a fine point and name names and say exactly right. who is accountable when it's their own in office. Yeah. So I'd like to see more people call, saying it's also the fact that Joe Biden himself isn't being responsive to this. It's, it's yeah. people like Chuck Schumer who aren't being responsive to this. America. And the, the feedback that you get when you say something like that, that on the Internet and you say something specific about who the person in power is. And this is what I'm driving at in every issue. All I want a guest to tell me is who's in control and what they can do about it. Yeah. So then we can start saying specifically, you can't hide behind what we get so often in the media. The response from the Gen Sahis, et cetera, of the world is, well, we did something. We, we sent out some COVID tests. You can get them reimbursed right. through your insurance. And right. that becomes a cover yeah. for doing what, the, what is within your full power as an executive. And so I really appreciate you bringing up that point, Senator Turner, because it is no accident that only when a Republican is in office do we seem to get the kind of traction necessary to get them to do something as meaningful as the EPA. And we can't let that power persist in the environmental context that we're well, in right now. But Richard Nixon yeah, today this- would be seen as a far lefty. Well, yeah, yeah it would be. That's a blue no matter who hath brought. Yeah, I just want to make two uh, important points, which is uh, justice cannot wait until the opposing party is in power right. for us to stand up for it. If it's just to stand up for this under Trump, it's just to stand right. up for this under Biden. So that shouldn't matter. And then secondly, I want people to imagine if they were in the middle of an ocean drowning, which person or persons do you want to come and save you? Do you want the person who's going to parse out, you know, who's going to be hurt if I come to save you? Whose feelings? Uh, who, or do you want somebody to say the hell with whoever I'm coming out to radically save you or if your house was on fire? Well, guess what? Our house being Mother Earth is on fire. The people of Ecuador have been transgressed. Stephen and other folks have stood up for these people. Now, Stephen is in in, in, jail, in prison paying the price for standing up for justice. And the least we can do is have the decency to call out people who ask for this power. You know, Bridget, I'm right with you. It just boggles my mind how we are programmed to protect the people who have the most power and then look down our noses and tell the people who have the least power mm-hmm. to wait for justice to come. Mm-hmm. It is unacceptable to do that. I don't care who's in power. They need to use the power. So A.G. Garland, he needs to get on his job. The president needs to speak up and do something about this. And every member of Congress, whether they Democrat or Republican, should absolutely give a damn about what is happening. Because you know what? That could be us in Ecuador right now. Hmm. That could be us. 
And it was Flint, people in Michigan. Cleveland, right? Yeah, and it was Flint, Michigan. Yeah. Flint, Michigan. It was Cleveland. Yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. I mean, you look in this Peace country. New Hampshire, et cetera. It's the, not like environmental justice is exactly being done here right now. And also another thing that they pull a lot is, you know, it, it's not politically feasible for them to do that. They might lose their job. As though they're the only people <laughs> in the world who have to make ethical decisions at work. All of us could lose our job if we did the right That's thing. Right. Sometimes you just do the right thing. And if it means you lose your job, lose your job. Well, and here's here's a name to name. Uh, Cedric Richmond, mm. who oh, is yes. and a senior advisor to the president, who, when he was a member of Congress before he was appointed to that position, he represented an area known as Cancer, cancer Alley. Alley. Why are the incidents, are the rates of cancer so high in his home district that he represented? Well, it's because you have lots of toxic pollutants going into the waterways and going into the air for those residents. And he never, when he was a member of Congress, he never, they searched the transcripts, never brought it up on the floor of the House, Mm -hmm. never said a word about it. And now he's in a position of more power. He's been promoted. That's exactly right. Because and he's so been when, a good boy. When we wonder, and of course he was also top recipient of yeah. all kinds of toxic polluters money and oil and gas interests and all of that. Well, he's rewarded for it. And the New York Times, I remember with the Sunrise Movement, said right. something about him. And they said <laughs> something about him because they weren't excited. They thought he was bad for the environment. They were not excited that he was being named to the administration. And Jonathan Martin um, said that, oh, look, oh, going after the, going after the, the, black, the, the, the guy. black staffer, the <laughs> highest level black staffer from yeah. the get-go. And so don't forget, he was also on that call. He was also yeah. on that leaked Biden call. Where the Biden, yep, yeah, all the oh civil boy. rights leader, where he berated all of the black leadership in this country when they tried to raise some pretty low key issues, not even, you know, a big ask about George Floyd Act and other kinds of things that there were demands for the black community. And it was, as I think, really telling that Cedric Richmond was there in that role of, I think, playing mediator between people with legitimate black uh, claims on behalf of black people who, as you know, Senator Turner, are on the front lines of so much of this, uh, these environmental catastrophes here at home, he wasn't there in a representative capacity to speak for the interests of anybody, most especially his own constituents in Louisiana, who suffer uh, seven out of the 10 most polluted air tracks in America are in his district. So he certainly wasn't there advocating for them or any other black interest. He was there to play the role of mediator and to protect Joe Biden from getting any of this kind of direct criticism. And enough is enough. Well, you know, my grandmother used to say, you got to pay the cost to be the boss. Okay. (laughs) So that means you need to just common sense. You have to use that power to stand up against injustice. And there is an injustice here that impacts each and every one of us and all that we love and that entire ecosystem that cannot speak for itself. So it needs human beings to speak for it. So we must act and continue to put the pressure on and and stand up for justice no matter who it's for or who it's against. So let's get and, ready to rumble, baby. Yeah, and with this case, it's not just about justice for those who are less powerle- uh, powerful uh, than anybody else, because what has happened to Stephen could happen to any of us. That's, I That's mean, it. the fact that he comes from, you know, fancy law school and, you know, has not a privileged a privilege, background yeah. just shows you. As long as that loophole exists, we're no, all at risk. No one is safe. And um, to your very salient point, Senator Turner, you know, Communities in America have been devastated by these, you know, these intentional crimes that are committed by these giant companies. Why? Because they can get away with it. And Stephen is the perfect example of that. Rather than Chevron, the polluter, having to have any sort of accountability, even pay a dollar of restitution for the lives they have cost, the damage they have wrought, 
the devastation that will never be undone. And still going on. Even I mean, the world is upside down. I mean, this case is a great example of how make it make sense. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. Yeah, it's an inversion of what it should be. But I think that there are there's an accumulation of recognition, people really getting that it is as bad as it is. And I think people getting that it's as bad as it is, is a prelude to people committing to making it what it needs to be. And and I think that's happening right. right now. Can I ask people to go and read the Universal Declaration of Human Rights that was put together in 1948 as a reminder of how we in the human family have an obligation to be each other's keepers. It is our obligation to do that. And this is something that can bring, continue to bring this beautiful human family together to fight for this kind of justice, both at home and also abroad, because this is a human condition. This is a world condition. And this is the corporate estate. I mean, this is a prime example of the corporate estates of America, that there is no exaggeration that if something like this can happen to Stephen, as we have been saying, it can happen to anybody, but it is an illustration of who absolutely has the power and the control, who's expendable and who is not, who we should give a damn about and who we should not. And, and we're all impacted by this. And in 1948, when Eleanor Roosevelt and others were so involved with that declaration, the good guys were winning. And right now, yeah. the good guys, the, the, what you were just saying was the consensus, not that it was always happening, but it was a consensus among the powers, uh, certainly of Western civilization, that they this is how it is supposed to be, that corporate power such as that should not have the hegemony that it does. Today, it's like you have to remind people that this is not the way it's supposed to be. And that it's not radical to think that way. No, it's yeah. theoretically <laughs> Western liberalism. Mm. Right. That's exactly right. Um, Senator Turner, we are so Thank grateful you so for your yeah. time we tonight. Love you. And the incredible moral clarity. Yes that you always bring to things and break the issues down to their most essential elements um, with your clarion calls for justice. Also, I think it's worth noting, it's worth noting publicly, because I know we all feel it. They took you down and the way you have risen right back up. Oh, forget it. Thank you. There's for no what you stop have been Nina Turner. Yeah, Come on. <laughs> well, I love I love you all, too. I get by with a little help from my friends. They're going to wish that I was in that Congress right now. Because baby <laughs> Nina Turner unleashed. I know. Wait, we hear you. <laughs> Come back to her. You guys need to hear her. We hear you. Can't wait. No. 2.0. Love you, too. Bye, Nina. Um, thank you guys again. Yeah, so great. Oh, she's, she's so, uh, so inspiring to hear from Nina Turner. She just has we a way of We need a daily shot of Nina Turner. She just has a way of We need a daily shot of Nina Turner. She's just like, mm, yeah. Well, she's out shit. there with her, you get her newsletter or whatever. Listen, knows. she makes you really feel like things are possible. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Yeah. Is it's, and the power, it's very the strength easy. of character that she demonstrates. Yeah. Like you said, we know. It's not even a question in my mind. If she had won that seat, she yeah, would be here. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She would not that's be right. reticent, right. nervous, right. let me no, balance my yeah. campaign donors or yeah. whatever the thinking is. No way. She'd be here. Yeah. No so that's our it. way of saying that we hope she runs again, right? And speaking of being here, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in, everyone for their super chats. And um, if you want to, by the way, Everyone needs to be giving to um, Don's, freedonziger.com. Please, if you can, give to it. Yes. Also, if you do the Super Chats, I'm donating the, those Super Chats. You're not going to be funding this show. Although, I, you, the Katie Halper shows, people like it. Some people like it. <laughs> <laughs> and and we all like Katie Halper oh, yeah. show. So, I'm just inviting people for free. Not going to take any money away from this. But if you want to subscribe, you can support the show. Subscribe, just emotionally. 
morale level support it, not financially. Just subscribe. It's free. You hit subscribe, then you hit the bell. And the reason I'm saying this also is because I'll be releasing the full interview I did with Roger Waters, the full interview I did with Martin Garbus, and they're both really fascinating. Also, it's it, there should be a shout out, a special ca- shout out to Katie, because even though the four of us got together and knew we wanted to do something, it's Katie who has taken the reins and done all the administration and really made it happen. So, Which may be why we started 15 minutes late. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. We yeah, wanted to do it in your style. Yeah. Your <laughs> trademark yeah. style. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, but speaking of the great work that you did, we have two more guests that you helped to get on the schedule. Um, we have... Natalie Segovia, she's an international human rights attorney. Um, she's currently legal director of the Water Protector Legal Collective. That's a nonprofit that grew out of that incredible res- resistance at Standing Rock. They provide legal support and advocacy for indigenous peoples and original nations, the earth and climate justice movements. And she also was on the team that represented Stephen during his appeal of Judge Preska's wrongful conviction before the Second Circuit. We also have Ali Girard. She's a campaigner with Amnesty International. She covers human rights issues in the U.S. and Canada. Based in Washington, D.C., she describes herself as an anti-imperialist feminist who believes that Stephen Donziger should be free. Amen. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. You know, Ali, we already talked about how the United Nations High Commissioner on Human Rights has spoken out. It was a loud statement on behalf of Stephen. And similarly, it was very loud when Amnesty International came out as loudly as they did. And you, of course, have been very instrumental um, in in the project on behalf of Amnesty International. What specifically have you been doing and what specifically can people do to aid uh, the process? Thanks for the question, Marian, and thanks to all of you for having me join. Um, I'm super amped up after hearing Nina Turner's talk. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, you may or may not know that Amnesty International is a global human rights organization. We've got 11 million members worldwide, and we criticize every human rights violation in every corner of the earth, including the United States. So uh, like Marianne mentioned, there's a UN body, the the Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, that issued an opinion about the case of Stephen Donziger. We are in total agreement with all of its findings, which is that his detention was in violation of several norms related to fair trial. And also there was very clearly a lack of independence and impartiality when it came to the judge. And of course, his deprivation of liberty appears to be in retaliation for his work with communities in Ecuador, which I know we've been talking about quite a lot. Um, So at Amnesty International, we're extremely concerned about the case of Stephen Donziger, not just in the U.S., but all around the planet, because as much as this is about Stephen himself and the fact that Stephen is currently incarcerated for all of these horrible reasons and experiencing these human rights violations, the U.S. government has also been engaged in a pattern of targeting and harassing, surveilling and prosecuting human rights defenders for many years now. So we've talked a little bit about um, corporate greed, lack of corporate accountability, But this is also about the U.S. government going after people like Stephen for defending human rights. So at Amnesty International, we've been echoing the calls of Stephen's amazing support group. And for years, we've been tracking his case and speaking out and asking the U.S. government about it. Um, Most recently, we sent a letter to the Department of Justice with several other partner organizations that was very similar to the UN Working Group on Arbitrary Detention's opinion. You might not be surprised to hear that they didn't write back to us. And 
it's not just that they're not writing back to us, the biggest human rights organization in the world. As we talked about before, they're not even responding to Congress. Uh, it's really appalling. Um, but we've also activated our members worldwide. We've issued an urgent appeal to our members across our global network to reach out to the Department of Justice and demand that they take jurisdiction over Stephen's case. Now, I work with amnesty branches around the world, and I cannot even begin to tell you how shocked and confused they are by this concept of a private prosecutor. It is truly a bizarre anomaly to them. And um, we have seen that Stephen's case has really struck a chord with people around the world because we have successfully overloaded the inbox of two Department of Justice emails since sending out this appeal to our global network. And so we know that people are enraged. We know that they are inspired to action. And like Nina said before me, they are taking the side of justice. So what we want to encourage people to keep doing is writing to the Department of Justice, tell Attorney General Merrick Garland to take jurisdiction over the case. And you can do that very easily by going to the Department of Justice's website. There's a web form you fill out um, and there's talking points both on freedonziger.com and on the Amnesty website. And so I encourage you to take that action. But also, like we heard earlier from Roger Waters, send Stephen a letter and, and to send him a letter in jail. Um, we are encouraging folks to write solidarity letters to Stephen. Uh, and he should be getting letters in the coming weeks from people all around the world who support him, his activism, uh, and, and are in defense of him at this moment where human rights are under attack in the United States and human rights defenders are in the crosshairs. So um, I, thanks again for having me on. And, and I hope that um, all of the listeners will take a minute to write to uh, Attorney General Garland after this show or during the show. Thank you so much. You know, Crystal, um, Stephen uh, told me in a letter that he has received letters from every state in the United States, every province wow. in Canada and from countries around the world. And I'm sure in large part because of the work that you have done, Ali. So all of this energy uh, really feeds, fuels the movement. So thank you. Let me let me throw a question at Ali, which is that I think you made some incredibly important suggestions about how to keep the pressure on. Could you just talk a little bit more specifically about because this is confusing to ask Merrick Garland to take over the case. Why would we want to do that? Um, what led us to the point where, you know, Stephen is actually out there saying, please, Department of Justice, please be the ones to come after me instead of this private prosecutor. Sure. And of course, we're calling on Attorney General Merrick to take the case because there is a gross lack of accountability when it comes to this issue of a private prosecutor. Of course, um, the whole point of having the U.S. justice system is that there are people who have to um, who are accountable to others. Yeah, like David Toronto was saying. There's an entire vacuum of that in this case. Um, but we are appealing to the entire Biden administration to immediately and unconditionally release Stephen. But beyond that, Stephen should be granted compensate, uh, compensation for what he's gone through. And we even think that there should be a full investigation into the way that he's been treated in the situation surrounding uh, his, his legal situation. So Ali, have you have you seen anything like this? I mean, I've just never heard of anything remotely like this. I guess in a certain sense, it's a good thing that we're not hearing about it routinely but is there any sort of precedent you can think about or other instances that were similar that you that Amnesty International has come across? Not in my time with Amnesty International. And what's been really interesting for me in this conversation is listening to the lawyers talk about how unprecedented this is. Mm -hmm. Lawyers have been doing this for longer than I've been alive. Um, mm -hmm. It's shocking and it's appalling. And, um, you know, it's it's it is shocking, but it's also 
Not terribly shocking. You know, like I mentioned before, there has been targeted persecution and harassment of human rights defenders. So it seems like this is just another example of uh, the justice system being used against human rights defenders. And I'll give you one, uh, another example that's somewhat different, but but similar in terms of targeting human rights defenders. And that is the case of um, Scott Warren. He's a humanitarian aid worker based on the U.S.-Mexico border in Arizona, and he was facing 20 years in jail for providing humanitarian aid to migrants at the border. Amnesty International campaigned globally on his behalf because we similarly saw this to be a misuse of the justice system here in the U.S. to target him for his work. Um, So that's a similar case, but of course now we've, you know, Stephen has gone through this house detention and now he's incarcerated. And so what we're looking at now is is truly an escalation. Yeah, to that end, I'm curious, Natalie, if you have been tracking any of the kind of increase state by state in laws with the goal of targeting activists and what the response to that should be from the activist community. So thanks so much for the question. And I hope the on now, but um, that you all talked about continuously over the course of the evening has been the power of corporations. And I think ultimately what this case is about, as Representative Saeed talked about, it's a test case for, case for corporate polluters. So when we talk about Chevron and Chevron being the human energy company, routing itself as being the human energy company, the irony of that is that they have yet to clean up the Amazon, then account for all of the things that they have done. With the um, the way that legislation moves in the country, um, it's often a response to the things that people are pushing for. So we saw after Standing Rock, a criminalization of water protectors, of land defenders, of people that are fighting on the front lines, not just for water and land and earth, but actual existence. And so that survival and that existence is, 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 is resistant. And as, you know, Berta Cáceres, who was a water protector from Honduras, said, no nos queda otro camino, right? We don't have another path. We have to fight and we have to continue moving forward. I think Luciana said it at the beginning, la lucha es colectiva, like we have to have a collective resistance and a collective struggle to continue pushing forward. And so with the power of corporations, I think that's ultimately what this case is about. This is why the Water Protector Legal Collective behind Donziger, because he is a water protector. He put his life on the line. He's put his law legal career on the line. And what we've seen with, within this case is weaponization of the law. And as Ali was talking about, you know, uh, human rights defenders are routinely killed across the world for doing this type of work. In, in 2020, which was the year of the pandemic, kind of in it, but, you know, truly within 2020, there were 331 human rights defenders killed over around the world for protecting land and indigenous rights and environmental rights. So if we are going to um, look at the legislation that's being passed, there's a ton of it in in corporations. And I recall years ago uh, being very concerned about the rise of corporations as more powerful than nation. And I think it was, I forget which CEO it was, but if you look at the, the global rankings of corporations and they match up with economies, national economies of the top 100 countries and corporations, right. we have 71 of those are corporations. Mm-hmm. And so we have Walmart hitting the economy of Spain, you know, and you have Chevron with $197.8 billion and Fortune, you know, 27 in the Fortune 500, 
corporations and they can't pay a dime for a $9.5 billion judgment, which is pocket change to them. So if we're talking about the power of corporations, we have to start acknowledging too what that does within the United States. At Standing Rock, corporate mercenaries, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, but truly that descriptor. You know, these were um, paid tiger swan operatives that took uh, advantage, infiltrated the stand. We've seen similar things at Enter and the ongoing criminalization of those that are willing to put their lives on the line, not just by uh, corporations, but also in conjunction with the federal government in programs like COINTELPRO that targeted the Black that were behind the assassination of Fred Hampton that were behind the um, incarceration of Leonard Butler. Uh, so we, we still have political prisoners. Even Donzinger is one, you know, thank you so much for your support. We need to free. Uh, and and he, he, he's going to get through this. Uh, the person, he's a wonderful human being. And uh, we do need support. The freedonzinger.com, please, legal defense. Um, and as I said, so we are going to achieve this. River told me so. Yes. Um, ladies, you're both Thank incredible. You. Thank you so much. Thank you both for your made words. such great points. Yeah. Thank yes. you. Thank you for your words yeah. tonight. Thank, Thank you for you. the incredible brave work that you are both doing to stand up for activists um, from Donziger to many, many more. Thank you. And Berta Cáceres is a good reminder, by the way, of, you know, Berta Cáceres, who Natalie mentioned is someone who was killed after the coup in Honduras, and shout out to um, the new president of Honduras. But we know that the United States had a large hand in turning that country and turning Honduras into the murder capital of the world and creating a really booming uh, femicide industry. And it was in that context. And Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama refused to call it a coup, even though it was a coup. Hillary Clinton lied about why she wouldn't call it a coup. And it was in that context that Berta Cáceres, who was an environmental activist and indigenous rights activist, was killed. And so this is all really connected to the same story. And it's about how, you know, it's a bipartisan thing to engage in real ecocide and genocide in the name of profits. And we see it happening under presence of both parties. Well, we had a lot of conversation during the Trump era about norms, the yeah. norms mm -hmm. and guardrails. And so when you see a case like Stevens, that really is it, it is that test case. It is how far can we go? What can we do here? You know, how much can we as a as a corporate entity with our money and power just take over the judicial system um, to serve our own ends in the United States of America? And the point that Natalie was making about the relationship between the power of nation states, which is now less than the power of these huge multinational mm -hmm. corporate conglomerates in many cases. And um the dangers that this presents. Yeah, the scale of this, I, I was reflecting on the fact that I think the very first piece I ever edited at The Intercept was a Kate Aronoff piece about COP, whatever it was at the time, COP24. And I remember like many, many paragraphs down, there was a kind of offhanded sentence about how many activists had been killed in that year. Mm, yeah. And I was horrified by this. And I, one of my editorial comments was, why is this so far down? This feels like big news to me because I think that that aspect of the climate justice fight isn't talked about enough even though editors are constantly saying it's so difficult to get people to pay attention to environmental news, everybody turns off for climate change, it's not sexy enough, it's not spicy enough. Mm -hmm. People are getting murdered around, right. the, uh, around the world. Donziger has been in prison as a political prisoner, yeah. and it doesn't even make front page news then. So I'm very skeptical of this idea that journalists don't know how to make it sexy. I think it's much more about what we were talking about before with all these corporate well, influences. That's...
a perfect, um, Donziger is a perfect case because, listen, we know we all do shows. We see what people want to yeah. click on, what they want to watch. And personalities yes. and human beings are a major draw. Handsome. Handsome so, man, too. I'm just going to put that wanted, He's I mean, a handsome man. He's very tall. Good looking guy. Tall. Very well-spoken, articulate. I mean, he's a, you know, he's a great character if you wanted yeah. to tell the story. Yeah. There's no doubt. I mean, listen, we've all had him on our show. We know people are interested and they're appalled by what's going on if you want to bother to tell the story. So I think he is the perfect example of, because when I was at MSNBC, they outright told me, this, oh, climate change. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't rate. It's It doesn't yeah. rate. It's like, well, but number but you, one, is that really how we're measuring? They do the same things. thing in, in every industry. They pretend like, oh, there's no audience. There's no constituency. Right. Yeah. There's like, no, there's no consumer base. That's because audience. you haven't right. created one. Right. Right. That's because you haven't educated people. Right. That's right. because you haven't informed people. That's because you haven't created the appetite. Yeah, well, with, with climate change, yeah. especially, right? Because it's oh, literally please. story after story about the weather. It's part about of the about this thing, right? About like people in, who live in this neighborhood. You know, they're, you see their car going down the street. Took them this like, long to get yeah. to work, right? There's, There's literally an entire yeah, 24 hour right. channel yeah, exactly. of the weather Dedica channel. And yet, dedicated and yet to talking about the weather. Connection between that and climate change. <laughs> right, it's yeah. It's a crazy thing that right. happens. Right. I know you happening. might not believe this, but when I was young, kids, <laughs> breaking news actually meant something. Mm. I mean, everybody would come to the TV because it's breaking news. Now, there's no sense of proportion. Breaking news could be that Justin Bieber got a DWI. No, uh, He's so, clean. You know, no, 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 do breaking news. Right, what'd you say? What'd you say? Just, Justin Bieber's cleaned up his act now. He's a nice married no, I'm man. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> sorry. Shame, he's good. But that's not my point. This And there's one other thing I, I think we should point out. This is, everything we're talking about here tonight represents an all-systems breakdown. Everybody knows that. And it will take an all-systems response to repair our democracy, our planet, and so forth. Electoralism is part of it. It's not yeah. all of it, but it is part of it. Please remember that less than a year from now, we do have uh, the midterm elections. And the time to get involved is right now in the primaries supporting the non-corporate-backed candidates. Because no matter who wins, if it's a corporatist agenda— so I hope that you will get involved. One of the places that you can look to uh, for suggestions about non-corporate-backed uh, primary candidates is at a site called CandidateSummit.com. There are other places as well. But this is the time during these primaries. Yes. This is when these non-corporate-backed candidates are having such a hard time getting in there. And this is the time that we should all be 100%. supporting them. Wonderful point. Um, we have a, Our next guest is perfect person to talk about these larger systems and corporate power in particular, Professor Richard Wolf. Um, you guys probably know who he is, but he's host of Economic Update, visiting professor at the New School, founder of Democracy at Work, professor of economics emeritus at UMass Amherst. Um, so great to see you, professor. Hi, Richard. <laughs> Hi. Glad to be here and uh, glad to see you doing what you're doing. It, it's it's a kind of wake up call that uh, th that we need a lot more of. So, well, talk a little uh, bit. Talk I a little bit more about that. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate that and very grateful for your time. But talk a little bit more about that. It's a wake up call about what? What should we be seeing here? Because um, we've been talking a lot about, you know, this is kind of a test case for corporations of just how far they can push things. Yeah, that's what I would like briefly to talk about. Capitalism is a system. We know that. Marianne just talked about this is a systemic problem. One of the 
features of this system is that it does away with small businesses. Competition, which we supposedly celebrate, is the mechanism whereby the losers are absorbed by the winners, and we end up with fewer and fewer and larger and larger enterprises. Long ago, Americans understood that this concentration of wealth and power threatens basic values that we're supposed to be committed to. So as far back as 1890, we had the Sherman Antitrust Act, 1914, a follow-up Clayton Act. We have had efforts to stop, limit, break up the trusts. To be honest and to be brief, it doesn't work. These reforms have not been able to do what they were intended to do. Nothing illustrates that better than looking at a corporation like Chevron and then taking a look at all of the things companies like this do nowadays. And if we put them all together, with a focus on Donziger, you can begin to understand what's at stake here. So, for example, Chevron is one of the few companies, together with a few governments, that set the price of energy in this world. We are all held hostage for heating our homes, for running our vehicles, whatever it is, by a tiny handful of people who get together in fancy hotels around the world periodically to determine whether there'll be more or less of the fossil fuels and what prices, therefore, we will have to pay. Here's another example. We are now suffering, after two years of economic crash and a pandemic, we are suffering an inflation. But I'm the economist. Let me explain. And inflation happens when corporations raise prices. That's all that it is. And they don't do that for any other reason than making more profit. And I know that because they say so. That's what they do. And now we are learning not only are they shaping our oil and prices and our inflation and so much else about our environment. But if you dare, like Steven Donziger, if you dare step in there and say, wait a minute, you're gone too far. You shouldn't at least not do this on top of all of that. You get assaulted by the concentration of wealth and power that overwhelms the judicial system with one side being able to afford a thousand lawyers and the other side nowhere near that. Money is buying the justice, just like money is buying the two parties. I mean, we are looking at a concentration of wealth and power that now literally runs vendettas against people who stand up and say, I am going to fight against this. If we don't do something, we really are headed, and I don't use the word lightly, to that coming together of corporate power and a subservient government that has a name in history, and it's called fascism. 
Now, I, you know, we've just mentioned this uh, climate reporter, Kate Aridoff, and she's written this book where she basically argues that we're not going to get climate reform under capitalism. If that's the case, if you agree with that, that statement, what do we do in a moment like this where we all make jokes about late stage capitalism all the time, but it feels pretty concrete at the moment. <laughs> you know, what, what kind of moves do we make in a moment where we see all of these corporations being able to put, you know, put these external, externalities out on the public, make so much money, have so much profit, co-opt the legal system in the way they've done. And it leaves us kind of feeling hopeless at times. What, what's next if the end of capitalism is the only way out? Well, well you know, for me, it's, it's what you're doing. It's being willing, which you are. And so many for long weren't willing to do it, which is to link the particular issue that aggravates you, the racism, the sexism, the ecological destruction, whatever it is, have the courage to say what you just said. This problem is part of a systemic crisis of capitalism particularly American capitalism that is in trouble and is trying to hold on to the unequal distribution of wealth and power at a time when the system is in trouble. The more we link the particular to the more general, the more we will create the conditions for a coming together of all of the specific struggles because they will understand that they have something in common, the changing of the system that is behind all of the obstacles uh, that they face. The more we do that, the closer we will get. And look, I share with you the frustration. It is hard. It is taking so long. You know, I give myself solace and maybe it'll help you too. There was a famous political leader, whose name I won't mention, who was berated by his associates. It's taking so long, it's taking so long, decades, nothing is happening. And he smiled and he looked at them and he said, you're right, for decades, nothing happens. And then in a few weeks, decades happen. Okay. Hmm. Although I think it's also important, though, Richard, and I know you and I have had this conversation, just as you said, you have to link the, the specific to the general. We also have to, to, to mention those specifics that so matter. And if Ronald Reagan had not started that orgy of deregulation of capitalism, really ex creating this explosion of such unfettered strain of capitalism, then things might have gone differently. And you have talked um, about how this hybrid of capitalist and, and socialist um, systems, as it works in many cases in, the, in, in Europe, for instance, is an option here in the United States. You yourself have said it's a bad idea to think of capitalism and socialism as just a switch that you turn off and then turn another one on. It's a gradual process, knowing what should be left to the market, what should be left to, uh, to government for control. I mean, isn't that a correct appraisal of the things that you say? Yes, absolutely. I think it, it, it's an open issue. I like to tell Americans about what goes on in Europe, not because the Europeans don't have terrible problems, they do, and all of that, but to show that even within a capitalism, there are ranges of possibilities that are way beyond what the United States is willing to tell its people about. 
or even to think about. When I explain to American audiences that in France, a country that I know particularly well, uh, when you graduate high school or college and you get your first job, the employer asks you, which are the five weeks of paid vacation you will be planning to take this year? Because that's the law, because socialists have put that law on the books and even conservatives in France are afraid to say boo about it because they'd be voted out of office in, in 10 minutes if they ever threatened that kind of thing. I mean, these things are not imaginary. These things are not impossible. But you're right, even when you get them in a place like France, just like when we got certain things in the Great Depression, if you don't do something about the basic system, you discover you've left in place that capitalism that will then go to work to undo whatever reform you were able to achieve and put you right back to square one, which is why I began the story tonight telling you about Sherman and Clayton Act, because we have tried to stop big concentrations of corporate power, reforms, laws, regulations, electing this one or that, that didn't do the job. And that's because the system reinforces, replaces, resumes the focus on producing huge concentrations. That is the problem that the Stephen Donziger case brings to the fore so powerfully. Ben trained to expect so little. Mm. And too many people weren't around or were children, don't even remember what a difference the Reagan administration made, which is not to glamorize or whitewash American uh, corporations before that time, but at least there was a consensus that there was, there should be some level of corporate responsibility. And now what Reagan started, what the Republicans started, no Democrat has stopped. And it's just further and further fuel for this unfettered, unregulated, dark strain of capitalism that now has so many young people who say, what the hell has global capitalism ever done for me? I don't blame them. They look at socialism and they go, what am I supposed to be afraid of? The free health care or the free college? And so it's, <laughs> it's happening. It's, it's a conversation I'm even reading on the my table and that's where <laughs> <laughs> I'm even reading my emails. It sounds like a direct quote from me. Yeah. Well, See, I, you're thinking, what, I don't write my own material? Excuse me. Go ahead, Professor. But there is, there is a remarkable irony, isn't there? That on the one hand, we complain about, we protest, as we rightly should, this case and all the other injustices. But you know, again, the very accumulation the repeated insistence that we have that these are not necessary, these are not justified, these are systemic in their roots and their origin, these insistences add up. And despite our frustration, I for sure will say to you, I never expected in my lifetime and I was born in Ohio, and I've lived and worked all my life in the United States. I never expected to see the level of consciousness of critical consciousness. And when Marianne says, people are saying, you know, what's so bad about socialism? After 75 years of a insistent demonization of that term, that Americans in such numbers 
are open to say that, even in a casual way, it tells you on the surface things are shifting very big time. And we didn't even realize, I mean, the question we're all asking you is what is to be done, which is how we could have opened. Yeah, well, I think a little Len a little Lenin joke I think, for the uh, yeah. I think uh, the yeah. point that you make that Donziger is effectively a symptom. Yes. You know, his persecution is yep. a symptom of what Marianne described as an all systems problem right. yeah. that would require an all system solution. Professor, needed enough big mouth women. There you go. <laughs> and our enablers <laughs> of all genders. Professor, with thank you. With people like you explaining we're it always, all to us, thank you. Richard. We're always thank so happy to so speak much. with you and Look, have your your wisdom. All and your I can insights. tell you is. We're, we're cheering you on. We appreciate that you took the initiative to make this happen. Do it again. All of us are rooting for you out here. Right back okay, at thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Um, up well, next. Okay. Everyone share the stream. Share. We got to get a lot of eyes. Share the stream and, and like the stream. Yeah. Continue, if you guys can, yeah. give on the Super Chat or freedonziger.com. Katie's donating all of the Super Chat proceeds to Stevens Legal Defense Fund because the legal bills that this man yeah. has racked up. Intentionally, too, by the way. I mean, they None do this. Not intentionally. They, the no, no. Yeah, but Chevron, yes. this is a strategy. I mean, you could probably speak to this. If you, you know, feel like you have more resources yeah. than the party you're going you after, oh, you drag out discovery, you make yeah. them respond to a million things to try to make it as expensive to basically bleed them dry and financially. We didn't it's get true. into a lot of the details of the case. I'm going to defer to you on this. I just want to reveal one, share one detail of the case, which I think is telling, which is that when um, Loretta Preska, the judge who sentenced him to six months in federal prison, when she read his sentence, she said it seems only the proverbial two by four between the eyes. Yes will work to instill a sense of justice or uh, respect for the law for Mr. Donovan. The fact showed. that you are saying this out loud Animal. and you write yeah, it down, like this is such a show trial. This is so scary. Yeah, Over an offense so minor. So minor. That even, listen, it's bullshit to start with. But even if he was truly guilty, no lawyer has ever been sent yeah, to prison right. for this, let alone, this is a minor discovery Conflict. That's right. all it is. Right. The kind of skirmishes that lawyers have all the time. And not only they send him to prison for six months, federal prison for six months, but more than two years of house arrest. Yeah, and I will say that we've been talking a lot about the different ways that there's corporate capture in the court system. But there's one way we haven't discussed, which is that so many of these judges simply just transferred over from law firms. I mean, the, all of these, I don't want to say an overwhelming majority, but I suspect an overwhelming majority of these federal judge, judges did used to just work at Gibson, Gibson Dunn or one of their he peer firms guy. doing yeah. exactly this kind of work. So it's not even necessarily that there needs to be intentional capture at times. It's just that the natural orientation of so many of these judges is to side with these corporate plaintiffs. A lot of um, public defenders complain often that there's also a, a, an imbalance in terms of more prosecutors being on the bench than public defenders. And that has a direct effect on how these people are holding on um, motions and limiting all kinds of minor issues that come up in a case, not just um, even if there's a jury trial, right? Even if they aren't 
uh, in control of the verdict in the way that they were in this instance. So, you know, it's something to think about. We don't have substantive conversations about the judiciary outside of really the Supreme Court context. But I, as I reflect over my legal career and the conversations that were had as we tried to assess, is this judge going to be friendly to us or not? There were a lot of conversations about how this person's from this firm and I know them from them and we used to have, t- like, it's a, it's a, it's a small club it's and a you're not in a gross and, world. And both yes. uh, Judge Preska and Judge Kaplan, yeah. uh, very connected to the federal. Yeah. Society, mm-hmm. which yeah, yeah. takes a lot money from um, oil and gas money. Yeah. Surprise, yeah. surprise. Um, we have another wonderful guest um, to to sort of bring home the issues at stake here. Um, incredible actress, also an incredible activist, and some liberals would even tell you <laughs> that she can move elections, yeah. presidential elections, <laughs> with a single word. Of course, I'm talking about the all-powerful Susan Sarandon. <laughs> Welcome, Susan. Great to see you. And you guys have been so amazing. I mean, I love that you're not just bitching, that we're really getting informative information, you know, people that haven't been following the ins and outs, that we understand now how this is just a symptom of a much bigger problem, which is why Chevron is trying to make an example of Stephen. And then you're giving information so we can write to him. And then Nina Turner, you know, I mean, you can't, get any better than Nina kind of rousing everybody and also talking about, because we, you know, one of the things when everyone's being so cautious about everything, you forget, you you don't want to hear that we're on fire now, that this is the make it or break it time, that the system mm-hmm. is disintegrating and what's going to come up in its place. And that's why so many young people are either doing are putting their bodies on the line and are really, or are just saying, I'm waiting for a leader. I just can't take it anymore. I fought so hard for Bernie. I, you know, I've been working in, you know, community, let's do community because I can't stand electoral politics anymore. And Stephen is just such a brilliant example of something that you can really take your energy and be there for him because it just has revealed what's wrong with everything. And on top of that, you know, I mean, you couldn't write this if you were trying to come up with a, a really moving story of thousands of people that uh, Chevron just assumed were going to be voiceless and they dump all this toxic and, and, and kill thou- to over 2000 people. And then this guy comes along, this young guy, they win the case, they get all this money. Chevron just decides to, you know, basically take him, down um, as an example to anyone else that's even thinking of taking on corporate anything. You know, this is this is they're going to make him the poster boy for we will ruin your life. And on top of that, we're not going to pay. So I agree with Marianne. We have reason to be hopeful uh, because you, you do see that there are a lot of people that are talking and working and trying some way in their communities and finding something to do that gives their life meaning and, and direction and everything good that's ever happened has always happened from the bottom up. It's never happened from the top down. And I'm going to announce that I'm going to run for parliamentarian right now. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I support it. Support it. (laughs) The most powerful person that we never knew about. Yeah. You know, no one will ever accuse you of being overly cautious. <laughs> and uh, the, uh, the combination of your activism and your artistry, it is, it, it is such a high level of excellence and brilliance in both that has captured both the imagination and the admiration of so many of us. There is a viral video that's out uh, right now where 
out of Peter Jackson's new documentary about the Beatles, where you actually see um, Paul McCartney just hanging out, playing kind of—have you seen this? Mm-hmm. He's just kind of hanging I, out, right? And then he comes up, he comes up with Get Back, and you actually watch the creative process. I had a moment like that with you, because you and I were both in the courtroom when Judge Prescott came out. And I saw how you were looking at her, and I was looking at you because I was so fascinated. I'm watching one of the great actresses. Oh, I hope she'll play Judge Prescott. I was watching. Oh, I would wish that watching I her. I was watching and hoping, and I didn't want to say anything. So I, I didn't know if I should say anything. Now I'm saying it in front of all these people. But I, boy, Crystal was talking about how it's a great case. It would be a great movie. And I saw how you were watching Judge Prescott. Katie was talking before about the mean-spiritedness that she has displayed, and you and I were seeing it that day, but it was fascinating, I have to say, watching you watch her. And about, and at a certain point, she starts reading the newspaper. I mean, Uh interrupting and saying, do you really want to use your time that way? Do you really, you only have 20 minutes. Do you really want to use your, just pushing, pushing, pushing people to the brink, you know, these very respected lawyers trying to talk in their statements and she just kept interrupting. She was rude. She was so petty and so empowered and so just, just, oh God, you know, yeah, it would be a great character because she's so loathsome. Yeah. Now she'll probably, I'll get in trouble for saying this, but I don't care. I mean, it was kind of shocking to see just how undemocratic the whole thing was. I mean, when we came out, Marianne said, well, I thought it was going to be bad, but I didn't understand it would be this bad. Yeah. And yeah. It was a mockery, really, of a trial. Okay. Yeah, David Sorota, when we were talking to him earlier about, you know, the lack of media coverage and why, you know, they weren't getting the story until he was already in prison, you know, finally there was a tiny bit of coverage. And he said that, you know, we explored a lot of issues around corporate power and those things. But also he said, you know, I think a lot of people had a sense of like, surely this isn't really going to happen. Surely somebody's going to intervene. I mean, I even kept thinking like, surely they're going to at least credit him for the freaking two yeah. plus years served, yeah. that he served. And As so the UN came out with a statement just a few days before the sentencing. Remember that? The, uh, yes. the statement that they made. Yeah. So that's UN high commission. Americans. Must, yeah. Americans have been trained to not care what the U.N. has to say. Well, I, I actually, you know, I was thinking about that, Marianne, because I think it's profoundly important that they released a statement, Amnesty International, saying, you know, this is illegal and not only does he need to be released, but he should be paid reparations. And you have members of Congress who sent letter to the, the Justice Department. Of course, they could be doing a lot more. <coughs> but— they don't even feel the need to respond. Yeah, I mean that feels like I don't know. Well, if you get <laughs> respond, then you're on the record. If you don't respond, then you're not being. Right. You know, I'm also concerned. Why haven't we heard from a lot of other environmental groups? Why? I mean, the only one I know that's that said anything was Amazon. Gotcha. Which one? Gotcha. Co- oh. No, Greenpeace. Amazon. And Greenpeace has Greenpeace. too. Greenpeace has yeah. spoken. Greenpeace and Amazon Watch. There's a lot of other yeah. conservation international. I mean. All anything to do with people that are concerned with water. Why haven't that? All of these groups should. This is what we have to do for any kind of justice issue. It has to go across labels, color, age, everything. That's where the power comes. As long as everybody's in their bubble, and I'm afraid that sometimes it's because people are afraid again of their finance. You know, this is why 
when Bernie was running, there were people that really wanted to speak out, but their groups were funded by Bloomberg, for instance, mm-hmm. had given a huge amount of money to uh, people that wanted to say something, wanted to, but, but couldn't because they were so afraid of losing their funding. And I think that I've been surprised that there was that it, that people always say, well, there must have been something else that happened. This couldn't possibly, it's not, he must have done something, you know, there must have been. And of course he didn't turn over his cell phone and his computer because as you went so eloquently through all the people that are killed constantly, you can't give that kind of information to anybody that's working, activists that are working environmentally, especially in these countries where everyone's counting on you, not knowing what's going on, any place mm. brown people are, you know, I think Chevron must have been just shocked that these people were chosen because they didn't have a voice. And now somebody's actually pursuing this for years and years and years, taking it to international court and they rule in their favor. I mean, that's shocking to Chevron, I'm sure. Yeah, it's incredibly rare. And the other missing piece to your point, Crystal, I think that it is important that Amnesty International and these groups are validators. The UN is a validator. But if no one takes that validation and actually is able to put that question to the administration that can do something about it, nothing happens. So we saw what kind of explosive outrage there was a few days ago when a reporter actually asked a good question of Jen Psaki about why we don't have these Test mail to, to everybody, yep. right? For free. And that caused a kind of hullabaloo. You could expect to see all kinds of times if reporters decided to actually ask the administration directly and publicly about these kinds of questions. But I don't know, and maybe I've missed it, how frequently people have actually asked at these kind of press conferences or any other kind of media event where we have access to Biden himself or his um, spokespeople, what he thinks about instances like Stephen Donziger. Well, that's what would be great, wouldn't it? The next time there's a press conference and the president is answering questions, uh, wouldn't it be great if a journalist said, Mr. President, are you going to commute the sentence of Stephen Donziger? And um, that's exactly what we want to see happen and what events like this help to create the energy for. Yeah. What about a movie, though, Susan? Don't you think <laughs> it'd be a great movie? I think it would be a great movie, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you and throw it together? Uh, all the Hollywood go a lot types. To <laughs> there we go. <laughs> Lucy Lawless, yeah. Brandon. You know, I already started what? casting it with him and his son. We had Stephen on once, and his son came in the room, and uh, we tried to figure it out. Maybe Harrison Ford. I think my audience thought would be mm. good. Harrison well, Ford, Tom Hanks, George Clooney. I mean, you know, and this isn't to make light of that direction at all, because no, um, film is extraordinarily yeah. important for communicating that message. I mean, that's why Sirota helped to make the movie that he did. Um, speak to that aspect of things, Susan. And has there been any sort of uh, attention or understanding of this case in Hollywood at all? Stephen has been contacted. Well, first of all, I, I'm the last person that knows what's going on in Hollywood. I'm- <laughs> Come on, tell us. <laughs> Since I um, did the expose on. You know, uh, honestly, if it's a good story, I'm sure somebody would be interested in doing it. Maybe they're waiting to find out the ending. Mm-hmm. Uh, there you, you know, go. It's it's always possible to get the money up if people are willing to work for nothing and and you know and it's a good story. I mean, so I haven't I haven't heard anything. I I, I think probably people are looking toward it, but let's write him letters and send donations and get him out so it has a happy ending. Well, I would love to see Susan Sarandon as Judge Prescott. That, that's for <laughs> sure. That would be uh, 
an amazing courtroom scene. Thank you I, so much. I saw the real one, but the one with Susan Sarandon would even be better. <laughs> I forgot, what is her backstory? What? Where did she go wrong? Uh, always, where is she from? Lithuanian parents. I saw that in your eyes. I saw that while you, you know, were looking. I saw not you enough look mothers look. nursing their children. What happened? <laughs> <laughs> It's always the mother's fault. <laughs> yeah, she does have big wicked witch know. energy. She clearly was having a great time. Yeah, so was being so mean. She was having a great time, and she felt very empowered. And all the bustling back and forth of the other gal too—they were so patronizing. That was the thing that was extraordinary. Yeah, Just I mean that's the way they were treating the lawyers who we heard tonight. Yeah, that, that's psychopathic to be taking yeah. actual pleasure. Yeah. Reading the newspaper. Out of being in that position, that's sick. That is actually sick. I never sick. have thought to play it that way. It was mesmerizing. Wow. She was really out of control. Uh, yeah. But, I, I, you know, at the end of the day, I, I'm i putting all my faith in, in the young folk. I think that they know a lot more than than the old people that I know that like me that are just, you know, that are stuck on watching CNN, MSNBC, and really are terrified to admit what's actually going on because they just just can't go there because they'd rather hold on to their illusions, you know, at this point. And so I think that it's very hard to shift a lot of those people if they're not in that lane already to be open and inquisitive. So we have to focus on the young people who don't identify with Democrat or Republican, who go more for issues, who understand that the world that's on fire is their world, and who want to live a life that is, um, whose energy comes from doing the just thing on, across the board, because all of these things, you know, this environmental situation is completely predicated on racism. Uh, is, and that's how so much of this happens. And, and uh, you know, Richard was talking about the systemic problem of capitalism. Well, that's true. And why do we hold on to it when it gives us so little? It's because it's the bad, abusive partner, you know, that we've been with for so long. And how do we get people to understand? And, and maybe just at this point, because things are so bad, because everything's this is this will allow the cracks where the light comes in, as Leonard Cohen says. You know, that's what happens when something cracks. So I'm I'm choosing to be hopeful and to think that a better world is possible. I think that's all any of us can do and keep acting yes. as if that possibility can become reality. Um, Susan, we're so grateful. You're a radical truth teller on screen and off, Susan. Thank you. And you guys, much I love to you. Serious, you too. Thank yeah. you. God Thank bless you. you. Great to see you, Thank Susan. You. I look forward to uh, continuing to end row with her, yeah. <laughs> going, going into the future. Yeah. Since it's all our fault, according to Twitter. Right. Oh, that's neither here nor there. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I know. Maybe she could use the power that she used to get Hillary Clinton elected. She could use it to free Don's. Every master. You see, that, that's the kind of hard Mr. questions Chance. that that no one asked Saki. She goes straight <laughs> from her heart to her lips. Mm. Yeah. She mm. just goes straight. This is what I feel. This is what I know. And you can right tell. You. you can tell when a person is like that. Yeah. It's very clear. Yeah. And when you and Susan were both on um, Bad Faith, I asked Susan about the kind of the consequences, consequences uh, professionally of being yeah. so, you know, politically 
forward and kind of uh, brave in the way that she's been. And I think it's it's interesting to me to observe both she and Lucy Lawless kind of say, I'm not in that Hollywood machine anymore. Yeah, and both I, of them were very like, well, that's, <laughs> that's not Hollywood. I have and no idea. Yeah, I'm curious how much of that is you know, by choice and how much they have received blowback or how much they stepped away personally because that's the only way that they really feel like they can articulate their full political selves. And, you know, certainly we've experienced what that kind of ostracization can look like in the political, in the world of journalism rather. And it's, it's, there's no, there's no place you can live, work and breathe that you don't experience that kind of hegemonic force of, of, of lining up with the, Corporatist mainstream. Well, the shadow side of capitalism has made everybody so focused on brand protection. If I say it, I'll sell fewer Mm. widgets. If I say, I actually was, I received a contract today for a speaking assignment, not assignment, speaking, you know. Engagement. And I couldn't believe the things that they put in the contract. You will not discuss politics. You will not discuss anything fear-based that does not already, that does not also speak to solutions. I've never seen anything Whoa, like that. Well, it's like, well, you know who I am? <laughs> right? Have you ever heard me? <laughs> um, Why did you pick but, me um, here? Yeah. yeah, I think that that's what, what's really the next step for our generation. And I think that this really speaks to everything that we're talking about today. The, the, the era of data collection is over. We really know everything we need to mm. know. The issue now is, will we have the courage we to make mm-hmm. the changes that we know? Data collection of another sort Now it's a matter happening. of... <laughs> what did you say? No, data collection is happening, just of another sort. But Well, yes. I think so much of the data collection that we need, right. we know yes. how. Yes, right. we have we the have information. Been yeah, with the not only yeah. the specifics by all of us, by David, et cetera, but the systemic by people like Chris Hedges and um, Richard Wolff. And now it's, will we find the courage to do what we need to do no. to save the world in time? Yeah. And, and I think when we see people like Stephen Donziger, who have stood by his principles, stood by his ethics, despite all else— um, our standing for Stephen, we're seeing demonstrated right there uh, what it means to be a person who really stands on your values. We see the price that he has paid doing so. And I think it is right and appropriate and good that we're standing up to the best of our ability for him. We hope all of you will go to freedonsigo.com. Do what you can. You can also make a monthly donation. Uh, help him have that, that uh, legal representation that he needs. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And we'll all continue, right? Yeah. None of yeah. us are going to stop. For sure. For sure. Yeah. And I think we have uh, one more person who we wanted to bring into this conversation. One of several of my partners in crime, Kyle <laughs> Kalinske, is actually driving on his way down here to record the podcast with me tomorrow. But he wanted to make sure that he um, <laughs> got to have his say in here as well, because he's also a strong supporter of Stephen. Let's take a listen to that. So first of all, I want to say a big thank you to Crystal, Katie Halper, Marianne Williamson, Brianna Joy Gray, um, and everybody who's involved in this event. I think this is super important. Um, I think we need maximum pressure to be exerted to try to get uh, a good outcome out of a bad situation in regards to Steven Donzinger. And um, so let's talk a little bit about him, because um, this is egregious, what happened to this man. I mean, it is indicative of the United States effectively being a corporatocracy where corporations really run the show and our so-called representative government is more or less a farce. So let's run through the facts of of the case. Uh, Stephen Donziger is a lawyer and he was able to successfully prosecute the oil company Chevron 
for what they did in Ecuador. Um, the details of what they did in Ecuador are astounding. I mean, it was their dumping ground. It was, you know, people were poisoned. Water sources were destroyed. Um, it was a $9.5 billion win for the people of Ecuador, again, largely thanks to the work of great people uh, like Steven Donziger. Now, of that $9.5 billion, how much money did Chevron actually end up paying out to the people of Ecuador? Zero dollars and zero cents. And this is something that you unfortunately see uh, when it comes to the international community and how the U.S. acts in regards to it. We ignore them. You know, I mean, it goes without saying, but when you look at the war crimes committed by the Bush administration, for example, nobody's been held accountable. Paul Wolfowitz, Donald Rumsfeld, George W. Bush, Dick Cheney. These people are, are as free as can be when they violated every international law in the books. And as Noam Chomsky famously said, if the Nuremberg laws were upheld, every post-World War II U.S. president would be hanged. We flat out ignore international law. We ignore the International Criminal Court, for example. Well, here you have a corporation being found guilty. They owe the people of Ecuador $9.5 billion because of the damages, thanks to Stephen Donziger, and they paid out absolutely none of it. And then in turn... They threw the book at Steven Donzinger. So uh, what happened? Well, he uh, they you they mucked up a BS charge against him. Remember, again, multiple courts found Chevron guilty. They owe nine point five billion dollars to Ecuador. Um, in response to that, in U.S. courts, they tried to get Steven Donzinger to turn over his computer and his cell phone. Now. Nominally, they wanted to do this in in relation to the case and and Chevron, but effectively, he would have to turn over his computer and his cell phone to Chevron. So he said, I'm not going to do that. This is absurd. And nobody in my position would do that. Well, then they charged him with a class B misdemeanor contempt of court. Now, you hear class B misdemeanor and you probably think, well, I mean, there's not much they can get them on with a Class B misdemeanor. Well, if you continue to bend the rules, there absolutely is. And they've effectively ruined this guy's life over this. So um, he got a sentence of six months in prison. That's the maximum sentence you can get for a Class B misdemeanor. Uh, but more importantly, he spent about 800 days in house arrest with an ankle bracelet on. He couldn't leave. He missed a lot of uh, you know great years with his family. And... What his his lawyer was trying to do was say, look, this is already absurd, but, uh, but give him time served for the amount of time he was in solitary confinement. Now, the maximum sentence that somebody had served for the crime that they were trying to muck up against him was 90 days of home confinement. So he spent 800 days in home confinement. And then on top of that, when he went for sentencing, they gave him six months in a federal prison. Six months. Now, how the hell could this possibly happen? Well, very simply, he didn't face a jury. He didn't face a jury. Uh, and the judge, there were multiple judges involved in this whole fiasco, but um, the judge who doled out this sentence has connections to Chevron and is part of the Federalist Society. But more importantly, uh, there was a private law firm that prosecuted him and they're also funded by Chevron. So look at the facts here. This guy defeats Chevron 
in a court of law, wins a $9.5 billion settlement for the people of Ecuador for what Chevron did to them. They don't pay out any of it. And then they muck up all these charges, throw them at Steven Donzinger, and give him way more than what the maximum sentence even would be for the fake charge that they mucked up against him. And it's all because Chevron effectively bought the judge, and the prosecution is a private law firm, which is funded by Chevron. Look, it goes without saying, it's the most obvious thing in the world, but free Stephen Donziger. Uh, free him, and for the love of God, he should get some sort of, you know, apology and financial reward for all this garbage that he had to go through. But as Stephen likes to say, and this is completely true, what we're dealing with here is a situation where it's not just about him now, because now we've set the precedent. And the precedent is, in the United States of America, the corporations rule all, they can rig the system to the high heavens, and they can throw the book at you when you beat them, when you take them down, when you bring about justice. And there's never been a clearer example of it than this. So listen, again, uh, thanks to the wonderful women who are uh, putting on this event. This was sorely needed. Free Stephen Donziger, free him now. And look, while we're at it, I'll just throw this out there as well. Free Julian Assange. Uh, let Edward Snowden come home. Free Daniel Hale, the drone whistleblower. This is unacceptable, man. This is absolutely unacceptable. And this precedent is as scary as it gets because this is the United Corporate States of America. And the biggest crime, according to them, is defeating them fairly. And that can't stand. That's right. That's and he's it. good, man. Yeah, that's it. I mean, and how many times have we seen that? And he called out the names of the person who exposes yeah. the wrongdoing yeah. or holds the powerful accountable. He's the only one. They're the only one that actually pays the price. Yeah. yeah. This is blowback. That's it. Total inversion. That's it. Kafka-esque. Um, thank you guys for watching. Yes. Thank you. So thank many you. of you we've seen donating. I know probably a lot more went to freedonziger.com. Please do that if you're able to, because um, they have tried as a strategy, Chevron, to bleed this man dry. His legal bills are absolutely insane. And he is going to get out of prison yeah. in five months. And he'll be able to, if, you know, if the Biden administration doesn't hear our pleas, that's the worst case scenario. And he's going to go about rebuilding his life and you guys can help support him. But the point we've tried to make over the course of the evening is, listen, this has been personally, I can't even imagine what he's been through. I mean, he has a son, yeah. he has a wife, son's in high school. I mean, just a, a, the personal part of this is bad enough. But the bigger picture, the precedent that's set, the, the guardrail that's been broken, which we heard so much about during the Trump years, but suddenly when it comes to this case, no one is there to call that out. That's the part that's, that's really frightening and has devastating consequences for the climate, for human rights activists, for really all of us in the type of country that we want to live in. Yeah, there's definitely a cohort of our political landscape whose ears close up. And if you say the word systemic, we have these epic arguments about, you know, CRT and the, is it Marxist to talk about systemic X, Y, and Z? I just had an, a lengthy conversation with Andrew Sullivan about this on the podcast and we go back and forth. But if nothing else, I hope that learning about instances like what's going on with Stephen Donzinger exposes the extent to which so many systems that we consider to be neutral and impartial and above it all 
really aren't. And they are controlled by politicians who appoint them, the background of the judges, um, you know, the corrupt news media, the lack of exposure, the way that the law is weaponized against people who don't have money, and on and on and on. And I hope that this informs the way that we talk about other kinds of instances, including the criminal justice context and uh, the extrajudicial context, um, and is really a, a launching pad for those who might not even be of the left to start to think critically about all the ways that we could better build our systems to have more just outcomes across the board. And this should not be seen as a right-left issue, because in a very real way, it's not. It's a right-wrong issue. Mm. And this is a moment in our history. Really, every moment is this, but this moment, it is of historic significance that we remember that if you see something wrong— Silence cannot be an option. And, Speak up. and this also isn't just about Stephen rebuilding his life, although that's a very important part of it. This is also about Stephen continuing to fight the fight that he's fighting. Oh, he'll and have some amazing that, things to say when he gets out. Well, <laughs> and, and I spoke to Luis Yansa and we played some of that interview and he says, you know, the struggle for requires Stephen's liberty and the struggle requires that we then go on to make Chevron pay what they owe us, right? Because again, this is, this is about Chevron not having to pay what they were demanded to pay. And this is the struggle. The struggle to free Stephen Donziger is also the struggle to bring justice to the people of Ecuador. And those two things are still have to be done. Um, and they are, they go hand in hand. So don't think that this is just about helping someone, you know, get out of jail and move on. This is about helping someone so he can keep fighting the That's good right. fight. And he'll keep doing that. And make sure you go to um, freedonziger.com. Also, uh, you can subscribe to the Katie Halper Show. And we'll be posting more videos with some of the people, full-length videos. And um, But most importantly, really, support Stephen Donziger, support the people of Ecuador, free Stephen Donziger, and bring justice to the people of Ecuador. And thank you, Katie, for helping to organize all of this. And thank you, Crystal, yes. for the use of this studio without well, which we wouldn't be able to do any of this. It is my pleasure to have all of you ladies here. I hope we can do this again and maybe, yeah. like, you know, tackle some other topics. Yeah, the the right? Yeah. doing the views. It all happens here. <laughs> all right. Love you guys. Thanks for yeah, tuning thank in. Thank you so much. Thanks for everyone who came and joined us to watch and also who spoke to us on the show. Yep. Have a good night. Bye. Thanks again for listening to The Katie Helper Show. If you like the show, please join the Patreon at patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash The Katie Helper Show. Please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And as always, we remind you that this show could not happen without the support of our listeners. Our show is produced by me, Katie Helper, Nick Palm. Brad Bloom is our audio engineer and an associate producer on the show. Our researcher is Joshua Bregman. And our theme song is by the band Cordova. See you next time.